my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Did you feel like you were really close to losing it all? Every day. Yeah. It was horrible. It was so stressful. If someone else can make this piece of content, I don't want to make it. You fell in business love with Layla first before you fell in love love. Yeah, I was really upfront about this and we both agreed. I said, listen, here are the priorities. I was like, business and then us. When your shit's so good... You don't need to game the system. That is already the game. Too good to fail. You that's know what the, I mean? Like, that's the line. It's funny because like right now, people will probably be like, you've made it. You're at like the pinnacle of content. I'm like, dude, we literally haven't even started. Uh-huh. Like the amount of stuff that we're planning on doing for like 2024 is bananas. Dude, so what happened with the Crocs? Yeah, so you introduced us to whatever, some guy at Dan. Crocs. Yeah. Yes, Dan. You know, then sent us all these cool designs for some acquisition.com Crocs, which would have been dope, and uh-huh. I would have totally repped him. Um, and it was like, yeah, we'll do some sort of collab thing. Like, right when we were ready to move forward, I was like, cool, like, send me whatever link I can promote, and like, let's do this. Like, I didn't even really ca- like care about like money splits or anything. I just like thought it'd be dope if everybody had some. Yeah. And then he was like, well, just tell us how many you want, and here's the bill. And I was like, huh? And it wasn't even that they were priced at normal Crocs. They were priced at twice what the normal, it was like 80 bucks to us yeah. to have the Crocs. And yeah. I was like, there's some massive misunderstanding. I was like, so many people, if there was like an acquisition.com Croc would, would rep these, like yeah. for sure. I had like tens of thousands of people who like did the thing, like I'd get this one or whatever. Uh-huh. And so um, because I was a prima donna, I was like, no, I'm not wearing Crocs again. 
Um, and so after that, I stopped wearing Crocs. We're not done here. I, I'm going to help sort this out. Right? <laughs> so the story here is um, at my thing last year at my event, yeah. you're wearing Crocs and you were just yeah. like, dude, I'm ready to take it to the next level. I'm super yeah. motivated to promote. Right? I was like, dude, I happen yeah. to know one their VP of digital there. Yeah. And uh, no, we, we are going to rectify this. Yeah. And I just want to see it happen. It's not like he's going to pay me or anything. No. Um, so that's, that's a good place to start. And you know, it's interesting enough, Dan, he actually has a holding company. And what I wanted to bring up was, this I was at an investor conference a couple months ago called uh, Capital Conference. Cool. And every year there's like rage. I think the the year before it's like all about the hedge funds. Okay. This year it's about hold co's, right? Everyone's hold co. Interesting. As if it's really easy to start a holding company, right? I mean, yeah. And and then it's like no, there's a lot that goes into it. I mean, you have a portfolio of businesses, right? And maybe we can spend some time talking about how difficult it actually is to not only be creating content, which we'll talk about in a second. But running a holding company, it's it's not just, oh, I'm going to hire an operator and that's it, right? It's yeah. like much easier said than done. Yeah. Well, to to dial in on the, the hold co side, um, I mean, we have, it's tough if we if we try to pull apart media from the actual people. But like, I think we have like just, just under 30 people who work at hold co, which is like a lot of people for mm-hmm. a holding company. Um, but we're really hands on in terms of how we like add value to companies. So I think there's there's kind of two models, at least that I'm you know aware of, or at least that we considered. One is the completely decentralized model, the Berkshire Hathaway model, which is delegation to the point of abdication, right? Like mm-hmm. just like don't call me unless everything's burning, and then still don't call me. Um, <laughs> and that's one model. Uh, but part of the reason that we have basically the cl- complete opposite model is that the deal flow that we have usually wants our help to grow. So we're definitely growth partners more than we are. Let's buy at a good price and hold it and just try and, you know, arbitrage the the value that we can get from the business and then reallocate capital at the holding company. And so um, for us, we're looking at, is this company in our deal box? Do we really like the founders? Because a lot of times if you're buying a company, you kick the founders out and then you put it in an operator that you trust, et cetera. So like we have a lot of, it, which actually makes it harder for us to do deals because there's so many reasons that we won't do a deal. Like we don't like the founders. They don't have a big enough vision. Um, we don't think the product's good enough long-term, which means like we won't redo pre product market fit. That's one of our big, like, that's why 3 million, if anyone's curious, like why 3 million in top line is uh, kind of the minimum. Um, and for uh, it's 3 million ish, but at least a million in EBITDA, mm-hmm. because unless you're there, like usually it's, you're still figuring stuff out. Like we want to have at least a basic product. Like market you've done fit. something. Yeah. There's yeah. something that's here. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, uh, we won't redo that. And then we want it to be in, a couple areas for us, it's usually uh, consumer services or business services, which is either brick and mortar chains or national services like mortgage sales or something, right? Uh, and those are places where if we can see like an easy like 5x or something like that, that's usually what we will want to pick up. So if there's like a bunch of like, it's kind of funny, like the double edged sort of you want a good business, but you, uh, my, my head of biz dev said, he's like, we want you to be very specifically incompetent. As in like incompetent in all the ways that we are excellent. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's like if someone's like, oh yeah, our sales process is horrible. Or like, man, we can't get enough demand gen, but we have like a huge LTV and we're really sticky on the back end. Like those are companies that so we come in and just murder. Yeah. Yep. I mean, we just we just bought a 32 location uh, teeth whitening chain. Um, and I was so excited about this. And then we went to the facility and the experience was fine in terms of the product. But the sales process that I went through was like, I was like giddy. I was like, oh my God, it's so there's bad. so many things that we can do to improve this. And yep. so we just rolled out our first level and we 5X LTV Wow! in one rollout. And so this is 32 locations. And I was yep. like, great. Like 
we just created $50 million in enterprise value. Like, let's just roll the th- this out over the next 12 months to all 32. Yep. And I was like, and that will be a W for the year. You know what I mean? Yep. Like one of the hardest parts about what we have is that you have this desire to have activity, right? It's like we have all, because right now we get 3,000 companies a month that apply. So it's, mm-hmm. it's continued to grow. Um, but we don't, we don't necessarily make more money by doing more deals. And so it's way more about fine. And like the, the hard part is sticking with the plan yep. and not getting like eyes bigger than your stomach. And so anyways, that's, that's been the, the biggest challenge for us is like just being very selective about the deals that we know are the best deals for us, not okay. necessarily just good deals. And you talk about the deal box, which is Warren Buffett's like you, you, you wait to swing, right? So yeah. what, what do you think it is for your deal box? You kind of mentioned a couple of things. Here. Yeah. So right now, and I think that over time we'll probably expand it as we bring in other like, um, like ex operators. So many, you know, if someone's scaled and exited business for like a hundred million plus in like software or something, then I'd be like, well, dude, just come into my deal flow and we'll make a deal that makes sense for both of us. You don't have to spend three years building out this massive deal machine. I'll just partner with you on it and then we'll, you know, kick off a, a different pod. But for right now, our stuff has been focused on services, uh, just cause like that's the world we just know really well. Got it. And that this kind of starts to go into content a little bit because you're yeah. you've been very prolific in the last two years with with leveling up your content. Did that teeth whitening yeah. company did that come through your content or where yeah. did it come from? Content. Yep. So walk me through how that works because actually I was having lunch and my friend has a pet holding company. He's like, yeah. I want to ask like how because he does pr- produce content. Right? He's like, how, how much does that content actually help with deal flow? So what happened with that story? All of our deal flow comes from content. So yes, it does help. Um, yeah, I mean, it's pretty like someone will watch a number of pieces. They'll listen to a bunch of podcasts. They'll buy the book. They'll read the book. They'll go through the course. And, you know, they'll have spent 100 hours with me virtually uh, before they t- decide to take the first action, which I like because then it, a lot of times they'll fix a lot of the low-hanging fruit, which is kind of nice because then you don't have to, like, have a thing that has all these issues. And so they'll apply our, you know, head of business. Of, well, well, there's multiple screenings. We have an automated screening that weeds out like probably like 90% just because they're not big enough or they're in a space or they're international, et cetera. Um, and then once that we have somebody who immediately reaches out, uh, to just qualify that this data is accurate, which again, that's like another wave. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then from the qualifying stage, we have somebody who then does a way more in-depth business case and basically writes up a full, like, one page write up per business. Yeah. And then the ones that that person thinks are big enough and in our deal box, then get passed on to managing director of business development. And so then he uh, takes the the deal from that point until close, which is usually like several more conversations, which he usually weeds out most of them. We usually do about two LOIs a month is and what that results in for us. I think just for those people listening, it's, it's hard once you're in it, like you understand how hard it is, right? But when you look at your team, it actually is a team of badasses. It's like a SWAT team, right? Yeah. And so you have people that have actually been there, done that. You've talked about your CFO before. You said it's 30 people. Yeah. Who else are kind of the, the key players on that hold code team? Because I don't want people to think this is easy. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> everything's easy if you don't do a good job. Um, <laughs> so it's like... Uh, so for us, we look at it by function. So it's like we have somebody who's an IT, so we call them SMEs, so subject matter experts. So subject matter expert for IT, for finance, for um, HR and recruiting. Uh, for We have two different marketing SMEs, one that's more on like the tech side, like MarTech um, and like media buying and like funnel optimization stuff, CRO. And then the other one is more like truly like the art side of like the words, the copy, VS, like video sales letters, ads, that kind of side. Um, 
and then we have a director of sales and we have a director of customer success. And so each of those people has years of experience building and scaling multiple teams to bigger than most of the companies that are coming to us um, and now have you know experience doing their function and scaling it within each of our portfolio companies. And we've just, it's just a very long process of step-by-step codifying every play in the playbook. And I think that it's kind of like the the Bruce Lee of like in the be- in the beginning everything's simple and then you have like a zillion, you know, punches and kicks and then it comes back to just like don't get hit. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? yeah. Um and I think that right now we're we're getting better and better at like okay, we crush this playbook really well. We crush this playbook really well. And so right now we've got like a three playbook that it's like we can 10x like services companies. And so I'm just trying to see like, okay, there's 20 other things that we do really well, but like, what are those like easy, just massive levers that we can crank on? And then I think that's where I want to just like, I might even say, let's get even more efficient at just do it, pulling these four levers, immediately 10 yeah. xing the business and then saying like, okay, so do we want to exit or do we want to like double down again or do a dividend recap or something yeah. like that and then okay. reinvest for another time? I think when we were hanging out like a like a year ago, it was service plus other businesses. And I think now you guys are honing it in even more. And like yeah. th- that's what business is, right? You just hone in more and more and more. You get, because then you get even more efficiencies at Holdco and then you can get more, and then it's even easier at the holding company to create value within the, the, the yeah. portfolio companies because they're doing the same. Like if you're switching from, Shit. Like, let's say uh, uh, an e-commerce, like the pet thing, right? So like, let's oh. say I had one of his companies, which would not be my deal box. And I'm, we're optimizing a Shopify page for chewing toys for dogs. And then like the next call is about the brick and mortar teeth whitening chain. It's like, it's such a jarring yeah. switch of like perspectives that you don't get a lot of like accretive, you know, benefit between yeah. both of those calls. Whereas if you have brick and mortar teeth whitening and the next call have brick and mortar photography, and then the next call is brick and mortar gym chain, and all of them are selling sessions and appointments, it's like, okay, yeah. like run this play. Yeah. You so you had a talk recently and and I want to go into this a little more because back in the day, at least for me, it was like I have this senior living business. There's this education thing. Mm. There's this SaaS thing. There's this, there's this, there's this, right? And for you, you had a, like nine different businesses or yeah. whatever, right? I mean, just how bad was it when that was when that was actually happening? Because I don't think people really understand how important focus is until they get punched in the gut. But it's yeah. like, how do you prevent that? So I think the, the big difference is, because people are like, Alex, you talk about focus now, but you have 13 portfolio companies. But like, I have one holding company. And if you were to reframe it as like, I own a marketing agency and I have 13 clients, Mm -hmm. it feels that way, except I own them. You know what I mean? But there's a full CEO and leadership team that run each of the companies. And we have our leadership team that runs that. And so like I own the holding company and that's my work. You know what I mean? Um, But where I've made the huge mistake when I was earlier on is like, I have one company that makes money, I'll start another. And so then you end up becoming CEO of three companies and it's a nightmare. And so that's the part like, it's weird because I feel like I only, I mean, I don't want to speak this over myself, but like I was only really able to understand how to do multiple things once I sold Gym Launch because then I, I think it was the first time I was really above the business. And then at that point I was like, okay, so the, uh, the above the business is the one thing. The portfolio is the one thing. And then that's when you're like your value prop as a, as a hold co it is a bit like the holding company is a business in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the big like epiphany that I had is like, it is a business. And then you get really specific, you niche down just like you do in, in any other business on what specific type of quote customers, even though they're not customers you serve. And you talk about working. So there's above the business in the business, yeah. you know, on the business, right? Yeah. What's, what, what's the difference with above in the business is like, I'm taking sales calls. 
Um, I think on the businesses, like I'm in leadership positions, I'm managing, I'm leading, I'm casting the vision, I'm inspiring the the team. And then above the businesses, the bis is you, you look at many businesses and they are all almost like product lines or clients, as I was saying earlier, um, that you, you, you don't sit anywhere on the org chart for these businesses. And that's probably the easiest litmus test is like, do you have a direct report from the company? And I have zero yep. and from any the other companies. Yeah. Um, it's funny. So Neil sometimes will call me in the middle of the day and uh, he'll be like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm working on stuff. He's like, I'm bored. Yeah. <laughs> so he's just like, right. Yeah. But that, that's, it's not like that, but he, he, he works really hard. Yeah. Um, but I, I think the other, other good comparison here is the, the difference between like a parallel entrepreneur and a serial entrepreneur. Cause a serial entrepreneur actually waits to the next level. Yeah. A parallel starts multiple things. Yeah. But then to your point, how are you supposed to compete? Yeah. I mean, the focus, the, the one person who's do, going all in on one thing, it's always, in my opinion, going to make the most money. And if you look at the wealthiest 50 people in, in the world, they all went all in on one thing. Yeah. And, you know, and there's a couple private equity investors who are at, at that top now. But I would make the argument that they're, they, were, they got into the business of private equity. And that was their one thing, even though they bought and sold companies, it functioned the same way as having a marketing agency, except mm -hmm. the unit size was bigger with more zeros. Yep. Do you think when you had the nine different companies, was it nine? Yeah. Okay. When you had the nine, A, it felt frantic, right? But did you feel like you were really close to losing it all? Every day. Yeah. It was horrible. It was like, the, it was so stressful. Because I mean, I had, I had nine companies worth of employees. I didn't, under, I just didn't understand how to operate. I didn't understand how leadership worked. I didn't understand management. I didn't have one-on-ones. I didn't have a communication cadence. Mm -hmm. And I was the rainmaker for all the businesses. Like it was so ridiculous when I yeah. think about it now. Like it's so obviously stupid, but yeah. You just don't know when Got you're it. ignorant. Before we move on from here, what do you say to all the people now that want to start a whole, they're just like, I'm going to go buy businesses because that's what cool people do. Yeah. And I'm going to go hire an operator. You have any words yeah. for those people? Well, right now, buying businesses is like in vogue. I don't really know why it got in vogue, but my best guess is that we have so many people retiring right now that there's just a huge supply spike. And then a lot of people who'd never made their money buying businesses, selling courses on how to buy businesses. <laughs> Um, cause the thing is, is, and this is kind of for the audience is like, if you make your money buying businesses and you're really good at it, you don't need to sell a course. Like yeah. the best people at buying businesses buy businesses and hold them and invest. Like yep. I think Naval said, like the best investors don't sell courses on investing. Yep. You know what I mean? Cause like, if you're really good at it, you don't need to. Yep. Um, and I just, I like, I kind of stick by that. Um, and so yeah. it is kind of shitty and there's a lot of marketing dollars that are going behind that and a lot of content being made because it's like sexy and the idea of buying a business for no money down that makes 500,000 a year, which is absolutely possible. Mm -hmm. You totally can do that. But the thing that they miss is that I can buy a business for $0 down that makes 500 or a million dollars a year yeah. and know how to run it. If you've never run a business and even if you do somehow magically pull off that deal, you're still screwed because mm -hmm. you have no idea how to run a business. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, you still lack the skills, even though you can close the sale. Like I could sell, I could sell that I could build a skyscraper. And if I somehow managed to BS my way through the negotiations and close the contract, I still have to build a skyscraper. And if you've never built a building before or even a house, very tough. And the likelihood that you then lose your ass on, because like you're not, you'll get the business that does a million dollars in profit per year for zero dollars down, but not for zero dollars. Mm -hmm. And that's the piece that I think a lot of people miss. It's like, it's not free. Like you have a liability or you have a debt if you do some sort of seller financing, yep. creative financing, whatever. It's like, but now you owe this person. Yep. 
and that's the marketing piece, right? I think right. we get the, well, it's the headlines at the end of yeah. the day. I want to talk about the the content piece. So I, I was hanging out, I, I was at a, speaking of real estate mastermind a couple weeks ago. Basically, this guy owns 1.5 billion in real estate in Arizona. And then in the middle of the pandemic, he's like, I'm just going to do YouTube for fun, right? Because he couldn't go anywhere. So he grew to like 400K or so. Oh, sick. And then, but his content is like, top-notch right it's like he understands he it. yeah it's like <laughs> this guy's deep you can yeah, tell right yeah. tax advantages whatever and but then Who is you, it um ken ken mcelroy okay, I'll look, I'll yeah so him. I'll uh, look him up. you should definitely talk to super smart and but then you look at other people who are getting millions and millions of views a month on youtube and they're talking about all these different businesses but then they know the youtube game but they don't have depth when it comes to business right so i, I see it as a trade-off at the end of the day mm-hmm. um but you're actually playing you're actually able to play both right and so um, they were talking to me there. It's like, okay, what's the point of even creating content? I just, I'll just go buy more business. Actually, this was last week. One of my friends um, was, was went to me. He's like, Eric, I don't need to create content. I'll just go buy their businesses. And then uh, I posted that to Twitter X the next day. Yeah. And uh, Layla, Layla was like, um, so Layla was like, oh no, but you create leverage. This is where we get our deal flow from. And you said yeah. all your deal flow comes from yeah. that, right? So um, I, I guess like- sure we have the same as, you know, we have a network and things like that come through, but yep. I don't, I can't, I don't think we've done a deal. Yeah. That's not come through our deal flow. Got it. And of the 3,000 that come through each month, what percent actually make it? Oh, tiny. Yeah. Right. We do two LOIs a month. And that's yeah. not to dissuade people. It's mostly because yeah. we just have a lot of people who don't have qualified yeah. businesses. Just to be clear, like if yeah. you have a qualified business, hit me up. Yeah. But we just have a tremendous amount that are doing less than a million in profit. Yeah. And they're like, I'll give you 5%, Alex. Yeah. Um, <laughs> man, so tempting. So, okay. If, for example, the, I mean, let's just use a fake example. Someone has a bunch of locations. They're doing one million in EBITDA. Yeah. Um, we, well, let me just rewind for a and second. Minimum is a million, just to be clear. So, like, yeah. art, like ideally for me, like I love that, like three ish, four ish. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that's where, like, you're right about to hit that, so we can just like yeah. boom twenty, and then it's like. You and know. you're you're aligning with them. It's like, hey, if we want to hold forever, you're like, hey, like if I like you, maybe, yeah, right, yeah, I'm good yeah. on either way because yeah. like we don't. We don't need the liquidity. Yep. I'm happy to let it compound tax free. So yep. like I'm good either side. Either and, way. And I'll just rephrase over here because I think when we, we hung out a year ago, it's you talked about how you're maybe moving more towards instead of minority yeah. investments into majority. We do. How are you thinking about it now? Yeah, we're 100 percent in that in that camp. Are um, and I, it's you know it's almost like uh, it's almost like finding your price when you're selling a service, mm-hmm. except in the deal world. And this is one thing that like. If you really want to get into this world, like it is such a long game because if you think about like product market fit, you have the same concept that happens at like a holding company when you're investing, you have like deal fit. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, what's my offer, but not to a customer, but to a, to an entrepreneur, to a founder, to somebody trying to go their business. And so it takes way longer to, to have enough qualified candidates to even make the offer. And then it takes 90 days to even see if you can close the offer. And then from closing the offer, it takes another year or two to see if it was actually like worked out so like your feedback cycles are so long that it's it's very painful as somebody who is an excellent whatever you want to call me um who's used to being able to like hey let's try this out and in 30 days have it both spun up tested and have data like in 30 days we might be able to like talk to a couple entrepreneurs Mm -hmm. that we think are interesting um and so anywho we have moved towards um bigger and bigger chunks of companies uh, right now we target 49% uh, with most of the deals. Uh, yeah. We just we just did a majority deal two months ago. Um, and so we're now doing both minority and majority and our minority 
slugs are bigger because yeah. it's the same thing where it's like it's the same work for us at 20 percent as it is at 51 and in some cases weirdly enough it's almost yeah. less work at majority because um i have fewer emotions to manage yeah. on the founder side because yeah. it's like listen i'm the one who's taking all the risk on now and so this is what we're going to do rather than saying hey man i think this is what we should do what do you think? And so I have way, way it, my speed of implementation yeah. on majority companies is so much faster. Yeah. And like what I would like to do in the next, and this is why it takes years to do this, but like over the next two or three years, I'd love to show the difference between our minority holdings and our majority holdings of how much mm. more profitable and how much faster we grew them Yeah. to then make an even more compelling case of like, I don't necessarily want to fully exit founders. That's not my intention. It's more like we have done this before. Like, please, like, let me love you. Like, mm -hmm. let me, let me just do what we already know how to do many times. Yeah. And that, like, I remember I had a conversation with one of our founders. This is one of the companies we actually ended up buying majority of. Um, we had like six phone calls uh, to talk about a price change that I wanted to impl implement. And we implemented the price change and we doubled profit. And it was a big company already. Mm -hmm. We doubled profit in 30 days. And, yeah. and like, we increased the price and increased close rates. Like, we call that a wonderful, yeah. <laughs> a wonderful thing because they were mispriced. Like, like we, we did a bunch of research. We saw the competitors in the marketplace where we were like, we're not even going high. I was like, we're just going up to market, yep. which is, I mean, I love those opportunities. They're not always there, but like, but it, if it had been a majority holding, it would have just been an email and be like, this is what it needs to change to let the team know. Here's here are the you know bullet points to talk to the sales director and he would just let him go. Yep. Do you think before, so when you had the 20% or so, like yeah. I, I think we were talking about this already. Yeah. It's like they weren't, not that they weren't taking you seriously. I mean, maybe you just didn't have enough It was more of a there. consultative relationship. Yeah. And to be fair, like, it's not like we wield authority. Like, I've, I'm not really an authoritative person from that perspective. Like, mm -hmm. it's always soft influence. We've never taken a vote in any company ever. <laughs> like, what? Because it's funny, because during the deal process, we're like, well, how many, who gets, I'm like, dude, we will literally never look at this contract again. Like, I pride myself on the fact we've never taken a contract out after a deal. Um, but it still feels a little different. Like no matter what anyone says, like if you if you buy majority, it just feels different. It's like, here's the plan. Let me know if you have questions about it or like, what do you think? Mm -hmm. And I want feedback more. I want feedback. I don't want to sell someone on it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that's the... You're that's looking to collaborate. Of, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so now we rewind back to the content again. So yeah. how, how do you think your content strategy has changed in the last 12 months? Because I, I can... From afar, I can see some of the adjustments. Yeah. Caleb's not here today, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah no, the team's bigger now. Yeah. I mean, um, how big is the media team now? Nine, maybe. Nine is people. It? Nine. Yeah, it's nine. And then we have some vendors. So yeah. probably if you included their teams, probably like 15 or 16, somewhere in there. Okay. I mean, I think the big thing is just like, we try and focus on content that only we can make. That's the, that's the big single throughput line. If someone else can make this piece of content, I don't want to make it. And so that's why we try and, we, you know, we call them, you know, one of zero uh, stories, which is like something no one else can do. And so like no one can talk about like how they bought a teeth whitening chain and then like implemented a new sales process and then 5X it. No one can say that because that's such like, no one did that. <laughs> I yeah. did that. And so someone might be like, here's how Coca-Cola, here's a breakdown of Coca-Cola's business model. But like, I'm not going to do that because someone else can do that. But this is the stuff that I can do. So it's more, it's going to be more capturing out what we're literally doing because I think the more people saw what we actually do in companies, one, it would get even better deal flow for us. Um, but also it's more unique than I think what most people do. So that's kind of like us trying to play more to our strengths, which is like our day-to-day -day is our strength. Um, and 
we almost diverted from our strength to create content to just like learn this game. But as our infrastructure gets bigger and better, we're leaning more and more. So we, we, um, we just bought a big headquarters here in Vegas. Mm. Um, and so we're going to be centralizing the whole media team. And that'll be our big media headquarters. And so you got the gym in there too, right? Yep. Yep. We have a whole floor. Nice. Um, and so there's gonna be a ton of new content we're gonna be pushing out. Cause it's funny, because like right now people will probably be like, you've made it, you're at like the pinnacle of content. I'm like, dude, we literally haven't even started. Uh-huh. Like the amount of stuff that we're planning on doing for like 2024 is bananas. I can't wait. Uh, oh, it's gonna be, it's gonna like, we will be pushing out a lot of content and it will be really good. Yeah. Um, Cause you said one thing earlier, but I, I love this statement, but it's like the second throughput would be like too good to fail. Cause that buddy of yours can, uh-huh. It's like you don't have to know the algorithm, in my opinion. Like if if it if the piece is good enough, you don't have to nail the thumb. You don't have to nail the headline. If people start watching it and they're like, "This is so good," they will share it. They will keep watching it and they will come back and watch the next time. Because what happens is like if you think about the human behavior side of it, if you just watch, if you over deliver like crazy on one video, the next time you post a video, that person will click it, and they don't even look at the thumb. They don't look at the headline. They're just like, oh. Alex or Eric made another video, it must be good because all the other videos are good. And I think it's more important to have fewer good pieces than more mediocre pieces. Dude, so here's where I'm coming from. Um, Looking at Ken's, during the pandemic, he had videos that would get a couple hundred thousand. And that's when you know you're doing pretty well with each video. Neil, same deal. He had a couple hundred thousand. Some videos would get a million views or so. And then same deal for me, a couple hundred. This is like four or five years ago. And my thesis here is that you have to be in the good graces of YouTube and you have to be, you cannot stop, right? And because those guys, Neil stopped, Ken stopped, I stopped, we're in this box right now where I look at Neil's YouTube, I'm like, dude, your videos are the same shit from the last couple of years ago, but you're only getting like five, 10K views, right? Yeah. So there's, I think there's this like this, this penalty box almost. I think it's, it's um, so in my opinion, all social media has switched to the TikTok, TikTokification of, of mm-hmm. social media. Um, I, you know, I actually think it's good because what it does is it like subscribers mean nothing. Followers on Instagram mean nothing. They're literally just a vanity metric now. And so the only thing that matters is click retain reward. That's it. Like that, like, and it doesn't matter what the platform is. They're all the same is like, did you get them to click? Did you get them to watch? And did you get them to come back? Yeah, that's it. And so the algorithm, like, it also, by doing that though, it makes it, there's never been a better time to start because in the earlier days when it was subscriber based, it was basically like an email list. Like you build a subscriber base and then they push out your stuff to subscribers, but they don't do that anymore at all. And now it's just like, they do look like audiences based on what they predict someone will like your thing or not. And so you could be a brand new account and have your first video do 10 million on the first upload ever, which I think in some ways is like a great equalizer and it makes the content king. Yeah. And so actually going to the shorts for a second, you're a team of 16 people. Yeah. What percent of your work with you and your team goes that you think into shorts versus the long form stuff? Uh, I mean, my shorts for me is like almost no work. Um, that's yeah. that's all the team. Okay. That's all them. So they're cutting up your long form stuff. Yeah, that's almost the majority of it. We did direct to camera stuff early to kind of like kickstart things, but it is, I, haven't, I can't remember the last yeah. direct to camera shoot we did. Um, because yeah, direct a, camera versus it's it's a very it's a different setup different and experience. so like you're, you're no more no more direct to camera not that, I, not that i'm not against it it's just that yeah. they've got enough other stuff and i prefer the other stuff because i think it's more like organic yeah usability per minute of footage is highest mm-hmm. whereas if like if we do a vlog day they're going to get three or four shorts from a full day yeah. but they got to go through like eight hours of content whereas if i do like two hours of direct camera yeah. we have like a hundred shorts yeah. <laughs> yeah it's a lot so, 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and so what about from this? This, you pull like what? Like 20, 15 you shorts? You would know. Yeah, it all depends. Like 10, 10, 10, yeah. 10 20 shorts. Okay. Yeah, got really 10 So you go for yeah. two hours or something like that. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Um, and your spend a year ago was like, I think like 120 grand a month. Like, yeah. what do you think that looks like now? It's probably double. Okay. So 240. Yeah. And are you getting paid on, on AdSense, any of this? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, not enough to make it back. It doesn't equal it out. Okay. No, it doesn't Got equal it. it out. But it's okay. The deal flows good. Yeah. 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 No, yeah. We, like, media is just like a loss leader, if you want to consider it from yeah. that perspective. We lose money on media, which is yeah. funny because people are like, he makes money on his $2 book, which, by the way, Amazon takes. You get paid like 30 cents on a book. Yeah. That's $2. But yeah. anyways, uh, that just goes to fund the, lo- the, the money losing media team. And I <laughs> say that with absolute love. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But, but, that's, yeah. but I mean, that's, I mean, all marketing loses money until it makes you money. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, yeah. you know, it's, it's a long game. Yeah. And rewinding back to the deal stuff for a second. So, of the 24 LOIs that you do, that comes from content, by the way, yeah. so it does make money. Yeah. Um, how many of those do, that actually go through? About half. Okay. Got yeah. it. So 12 go through. Okay. Yeah. Pretty high conversion rate, but it's yeah. also good qualification. Yeah. But I think we've just continued to get near, narrower and narrower. And I, like, I wouldn't be surprised. Well, our deal flow keeps going up. So if we might actually have the same number of deals done on five times the amount of deal flow, yeah. um, because we're just getting better and better at picking. Yeah. Well, one more thing before we go back to content. Yeah. <laughs> what is the craziest thing someone has offered you? Because here's the thing, right? Like, yeah. I do believe there is the brand equity that you have gets you good deal terms. Like so there'll totally. be agencies that come to me like, oh, yeah, we do four or five million a year. We'll, we'll give you 20%. It's like, what? Yeah. Like, right. Um, so like, what is the craziest thing someone's offered you? Like they're newborn, like anything like that? Honestly, the people who, 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 make, who make the craziest offers usually don't have anything of value to offer. You know what I mean? But um, I would say almost all the, all the deals that we do have favorable terms. You know what I mean? In terms of both price and just like, just terms in general, like, we keep we try to keep our contracts as simple as humanly possible. I've put this big emphasis on the legal team to make it plain English contracts. And like my lawyer like had a heart attack when I was like, I want a fifth grader to be able to read this contract. Because the biggest issue that that happens in the deal process for anyone who's ever done a deal is that their lawyer starts talking to your lawyer and then they just keep having these conversations and translating back and forth. Yeah. And then you have all these miscommunications and then and your it's bills like, keep going. Yeah, yeah. And then <laughs> and the only person who wins there is the lawyer. And yeah. so We've, we've taken a little bit of a different approach of like, let's keep our conversation as primary. And then we together tell the attorneys what we want them to, to do. And that way, like the, any, any negotiating happens between us. And that way, because like I remember there was um, a deal we were working on and their, you know, attorney who wasn't even an M&A attorney, by the way, if you are going to sell your company or have somebody invest, like have an M&A attorney. Anyways, um, <laughs> it's like, no, he's a family friend. I'm like, doesn't mean he knows anything about M&A. So he was like, we need this non-compete to be, you know, 24 months and a 50 mile radius around the brick and mortar locations. They yeah. asked for this. Yeah. Okay. And I was like, so the lawyers are talking for like two weeks about this. And I finally, I called the founder up and I was like, are you planning on starting another chain? I was like, you still own majority of this business. Do you plan on competing with your own business? He was like, <laughs> no. And I was like, cool. Then as long as you own majority of the business, you don't compete with your business. And he was like, yeah, that's fine. It's like, great. Glad we had this yeah. talk. You know what I mean? Yeah. But like that was probably like ten thousand dollars in in lawyer fees that went yeah. back and forth that was settled by two entrepreneurs in two minutes. Yep. Just yeah. obvious stuff. You know what I mean? But like that kind of thing is the stuff that like hang nails, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like on deals. Yeah. So now we rewind back to content. Sorry for jumping all over the place. But yeah. um the so when you're thinking about the ideation piece, right? So is that like are you separating that into another day? Is that like on the same day? And then how are you thinking about like the hooks, the stories, all that type of stuff? 
Um, the team brings everything. Okay. So the team brings everything from like, because they'll watch this podcast and then they'll be like, dude, that story was interesting. Can we do a thing on that? And then, cause like they, basically the team is inherently curious people who like my content. Mm -hmm. And so like to use some Gary terms, like they fuck with my content. And so <laughs> the stuff that they want to know more about, we, we go into more depth on. Yeah. And so, um, I haven't been asked to come up with topics in a really long time. Yep. Um, but I'll tell you how I would come up with topics because this is how I was doing it when it was just me starting out is that I just like to use time as my, as my like anchor for this. So I go far past, which is like, what are the, what are the life changing experiences or conversations that I've had that have shaped the way my worldview? And so those are stories that I will tell because I think they're impactful and people get value from them. Um, then I have recent past, which is like, let me look at my calendar. Uh, over the last week and just look at all the meetings I had. And I just like, I would have my phone up and be like, okay, so uh, I was talking to one of our portfolio companies who's trying to make a change on pricing. And so this is what we were considering. You know what I mean? I'm just, yeah. I just literally go through what my life was. Um, I have present, which is whenever something comes up in the moment, I always have a way to like brain dump it. And so for me, Twitter or X um, is kind of my brain dump. Whenever Double I threads? Yeah. Or, well, my they, they repost stuff. Got it. Um, but Twitter is my is my home home base for that. Yeah. And so they'll also come with the tweets that they thought were like interesting to make more content about. Um, and then you've got like manufactured, which is stuff that uh, doesn't exist at all. Um, What's an example? Uh, like I lived on a uh, hundred dollars in thir for thirty days. Like here's what happened. Yeah. Just, like as an example, I, that wouldn't be one that I would make. But like because somebody else could make that. Yeah. Uh, but stuff stuff like that. Um, and then uh, and then like case studies and vlogs. So those are kind of like the buckets that that uh, that we think through. But most of you'll notice is just like real stuff. Mm -hmm. So we don't have to come up with. Like, yeah. what would people find interesting? Like, well, this is what I did. And if yeah. they find it interesting, awesome. And what's like the micro there? Is it like one day at a time, they just dump a bunch of topics on you? Well, when we do recording, because we record like twice a month. Okay. Um, and this is what? How, how much in a day? How many oh, it's hours? a full day. Okay. So it's, it's two full days a month is when we do the recording. Once we get the headquarters, it'll probably be smaller chunks more frequently. But for right now, it's just like one eight-hour day twice a month. Got it. Um, but they'll have like full, uh, like six-page uh pre-productions for every video nice. of like these are these are these are the themes either store these are the the four or five stories that we think are that we've pulled from your other pieces that we think would tie well together around this topic um i talked to the team uh to get stats on some of these companies for this case study so like the media team now will talk to our subject matter experts at uh -huh. holdco to get like hey what, what was new this week did you guys yeah. do any implementations or whatever and then yeah. they'll take that and then repackage it and then that'll become content yeah. Dude, I, I mean, this is a sidebar here, but like, I know even with Caleb and my, my just sense in general, like, you like to be friends with your staff, right? Mm -hmm. And which I think is good. And that's how they really understand what you want and how you think as a person. Yeah. How do you indoctrinate them into your way of thinking? I'm mean, like a chief of staff would just be sitting and watching you and shadowing you for a couple months, right? Yeah, I think it's osmosis. Okay. I think it's just proximity and exposure. Yeah. And that's why that's why I'm so excited for the headquarters. It's funny because as a, as a previously remote before it was cool um you know that's how we scaled gym launch everything we had was remote and this will be since my brick and mortar chain this will be the first in-person stuff i've done um but it's weird because i feel incredibly confident at how much of a game changer i think it's going to be dude i, I mean here's where i'm at right and, and maybe my staff might crucify me for saying this if they find it but 
I I'm an introvert and I do I've been working remote at tech companies for the longest time and like we were doing hybrid even before the pandemic hit like a couple years yeah. three two, but I'm just like dude you cannot replace like this right like yeah. it this is a relationship and it goes much further, and um, I just think commercial I think commercial real estate is going to come back in the next five ten years so it just seems to be moving that way because how are you supposed to if there's this, how can you compete? Yeah, right? I think, you know, one of the, is, this is kind of interesting, is like, if I if we had like an SOP on how to handle difficult conversations, right, or bad news, whatever. If I teach an SOP around that, people would be like, okay, got it, these are the steps. But it's incredibly different to see me get bad news and then watch what happens. Yeah. Like it's a completely different experience and I think that is something that becomes memorable yeah. and that's what can change someone's behavior way faster. Yeah. I mean, dude, that, that, like that in itself is a story and people remember stories. Yeah. And so when it comes to your videos, because you're pretty good at just, your memory I think is really good. I just forget stuff, right? But it's yeah. like you seem to weave into stories pretty well. Like how much is it just second nature to you now? How much are you thinking about your stories um, when you're creating content? Yeah. So the storytelling component was something that I really worked hard on and I have continued to work hard on for almost probably six years. So when, when I started gym launch and I had to start teaching, basically when I had to start teaching, I realized that teaching was making connections between things that people understand and things that they don't. And so that's why metaphors and analogies are so strong because they're like, okay, so energies, so you're kind of like a car. And if you put your gas in, it's kind of like your body and the food, you know what I mean? Yeah, so it's yeah. like, I understand this, but I don't understand this, but yeah. I can apply the same principles. And so um, when I realized that I used to just kind of like lecture people on like, jargon yeah right their eyes would roll over and i just didn't get the desired result so yeah. i had to start learning like so then i started reading books on how to tell stories and um the the tldr on like how to tell a story is just uh you have a character you have an unmet desire you have an obstacle you have a guide who comes in with some sort of solution the person tries the new way yeah. it works and then there's an internal achievement and an external achievement meaning like who did they become in the process and what happened on the outside and so like I just pretty much just try and think through that process of like desire, unmet desire, obstacle, guide, plan, execution, yep. result. The fact that you can r just roll that off your tongue means like it is burned into you, right? Because I mean, I, I just, oh, it's like, sounds like the Harmon circle. Right? Oh, is it? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, like, the stories I are the same. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it, it's, for me, I just riff on it. it th this, I was kind of making fun of Neil and myself. And when I look at both of our YouTube channels, I was like, you know, we suck at YouTube because we just lecture people, right? It's like, but w then we we do like a, we do like a live recording, and then I'm just sharing a story about Mr. Beast, two million views on, yeah, yeah. on TikTok, right? Or anyway, point is, so the story is huge. Do you everything. think about your hooks a lot? Yeah, the hooks, everything. And let me just rewind the stories real quick. Which books did you read to get better at storytelling? Um. Honestly, I think reading fiction, and then I'm a big articles guy. Like I don't, I don't actually. People would be amazed at how few books I read. Um, I'm like really narrow. I'll like binge consume a field of study, mm -hmm. and so I might read like nine books. On so like when we when we started doing deals at acquisition.com, I read nine books in one month on deal making, and I was like, okay. I feel like I have a better understanding of just the lever, the tools that I have available in my tool belt that I didn't know existed. Mm -hmm. But then I haven't read one since. Yeah. Um, and then same thing with like, you know, storytelling in general was more reading all the different uh, articles and stuff that were out there about storytelling. 
uh, so that I could understand. And there's a million different like story, you know, unmet desire, character, you yep. know, whatever, but yep. they all more or less follow that same trajectory. And so to answer the first thing you said, like how much do we work on the hook a lot? And if that sounds like it's in contrast to what I was saying earlier, it's not. Because if you have something that's amazing, it'll get shared no matter what. But if you have something that's mediocre, if you have an amazing hook, it'll also get shared. Huh. And so if you can create an unbelievable hook, yep. you can still have content that just murders. Yep. Uh, and the I'll tell you a story that isn't mine um, and how it related to one. So um, a buddy of mine was a big infomercial guy. He's a little older. And he did this book. He had a book that he was selling. And so he had Larry King fly out and record like a one hour book infomercial promo. And so it was like a big deal for him, you know, getting interviewed by Larry King. And so he had Larry King be like, and you're live with Larry King, like the same intro he does for all the shows. And this guy was a very good marketer. And so he ran the ad and he was like, this thing's going to murder. I'm going to make so much money. And it tanked. And he was like, what is going on? And so then he, he was like, so he started studying game footage. He looked at his all-time best ads. He was like, all right, I'm watching this one. He watched this one. And he was like, I messed up the hook. He's like, the hook's wrong. And so he flew Larry King back out, reset up the entire fake setup of Larry King Live and re-recorded the first 30 seconds and then pushed out the new one with the new hook, $100 million in the next 12 months. That's crazy. And so we had, like, my story is not nearly as significant as that, but we had a video recently that was like, we all were like, this is a good video. And it got like 5,000 views or something, which mm -hmm. is pretty small for our account. And so the guys just cut out the first three seconds and then it was it was basically saying like so i had this time when and then they just cut that out and yep. just went to the when the thing happened yeah and it went from five thousand to nine hundred thousand is it because in analytics you just saw a big tank like drop yeah, off like like the they they hear the first the first three words or five words or phrase yeah and they're like not interested yeah and so you have five seconds but it's more like two yeah or like two milliseconds in a short yeah tiny <clears throat> but it makes all the difference in the world so going back to your team then, like, is most of your content team based here? I'm going to give a really good Go for it. sexy tactic. Yes. So this is something that I haven't even shared with you guys, but I just had this realization. So um, so I had a tweet that just crushed this morning, and I was thinking about this when I made it, was I wanted to give a business example, and then I used a the same principle in a marriage. Mm -hmm. and then And then I did the generality of the principle. But then I was like... I should put the marriage one first because yeah. it's the way yep. wider hook. And yep. then I did the business one and then it had the philosophical principle and then it way outperformed. And so we would like, when we're thinking about our hooks, we'll probably go wide business principle yep. uh, rather than like any of the other versions of that so that we can get a you know wider demo. But anyways, this is just like, Live I, content I enjoy strategy. the game. Yeah, I just enjoy the game. Like yeah. I think, I think it's fun to learn this stuff. You fell in business love with Layla first before you fell in love love. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, I liked her mind first. Yeah. Um, I mean, I pitched her on working for me the first time we met. And I was like, hey, this might not work out. Yeah. But th like, you should totally work for me and we can make a bunch of money together. And um, I just said, like, plain black and white, I'll pay you twice as much as you're currently making. So, yeah. But still look at the offer independent of me. Like, it should make sense for you. Um, and so obviously she said no for the first 30 days because I asked her every day. Um, and she said no. But then when yeah. I did the turnaround business, launched three gyms, came back with a big stack of money, um, she was like, oh, so this works. And I was like, yeah. And the I mean, the first question she actually asked me after we processed all the money, because I did it together, to yeah. a little bit of a flex. Um, <laughs> we processed like 120 grand in like 45 minutes. And she was yeah. like, I mean, I'm 27. She's 23. She was yeah. like, whoa. Um, she's like, is this legal? Yeah. <laughs> and your, your first couple of dates were you guys just like working, working at together. Starbucks or something? Yeah, just working together. 
yeah. yeah. I mean, I didn't, uh, it was weird because like, I just, I just like liked hanging with her. Like yeah. I just liked her around. Yeah. And that was uh, like, I, whenever I had the choice of like me being alone and me being with Layla, I just like always wanted to be with her and she kind of had the same thing. And so, but we didn't have like romance chemically love until much later. Yeah. Um, but I got her to quit her job and fly out with me within like six weeks. And even when you guys got married, you, I think you, yeah. like you weren't in love, love yet. No. Right. Really? Like, what, no. like at what point did you say she's going to be one, but I, we're not in love, love yet? Um, I say that we like really got into like love, love in December of 19. Okay. So that was two years, two and a half years after we got married. Okay. And that was because we made a conscious decision. Um, we were actually both pretty miserable. Um, mostly because we were, and I was really upfront about this and we both agreed. I said, listen, here's what, here are the priorities. I was like business and then us, we got to feed the business and the business feeds us. That's how this works. And in December of 19, um, we were both like, we had this like deep conversation where she's like, I'm just like not happy with this. And I was like, me neither. And so we're like, I think we, I think our premise was wrong. And so we said, well, what if we just like made marriage the priority and then the business would flow from that? Yeah. And so that's when we flipped everything. And um, it's actually been great since then. Um, and again, it was fine. It wasn't like, you know, combative. It was just, it's just much better. Yeah. And I, th I think you said this before, it's love is something that you decide to work on. It's not it's like an active thing. It's not yeah. passive. Right? I also think there's a lot of different versions of relationships. Like if you think about your friendships, like like your friendships with like seven different dudes that you know. Yeah. You probably have like the, the relationship is different with all of them. And so I think totally. like love is a really general word and we're just more limited by like our vocabulary than anything else. Like I think Layla and I have a very different love than most people who are yep. married and together. But I would say that it is absolutely founded in respect. Yep. And um, that to me was probably <laughs> the most unique aspect of my relationship with her was that I... I just respected her um, and she respects me. And I would say until that point, I probably had the more traditional relationships that were just like more lovey-dovey, more chemically, more romance, right. et cetera. Um, but the thing is, is like, I'm a really extreme person. And so if someone doesn't like what I like, like they're not gonna see me very much. Yeah. And if they do, and if they are that way, anytime I do something, it's gonna feel like I'm doing them a favor. And yeah. that, that tally board of like, Who's Can't doing win. who a favor is would get way out of whack really fast. And then I would start resenting them because I'm like, I want to do this other thing. And it's not that I don't love you. Yeah. I just want to work. And that's what I want to do. And so the fact that she just like, the biggest thing that made me really love Layla was just that she has never tried to change me. Yeah. Like she just, it was pure acceptance on this is Alex. Like I'm not going to get him to dress a certain way. I'm not going to get him to behave a certain way. Talk like, I'm not going to ask him to, nothing. She just is like, you do you yeah. and I will do me next to you. And as long as we grow on where we're going, we'll get there and have a good time. And that's you know who told me this. Um, Neil told me this actually. It's like, I was like, so why did you decide that um, his wife is the one, right? Michelle. Yeah. And um, he's like, she just let me be me. Yeah. And and like, he, you know, we've dated, right? I've, yeah. I've seen, you know, people come and go, but um, and then now, you know, he's, he's hounding me about kids all the time, right? It's like, you gotta get married to have kids, right? Yeah. He's lecturing everyone. Um, Last week at my thing, he was lecturing Syed, um, the WordPress um, yeah. king. And he's like, you need to have more kids, blah, blah, blah. But where I'm going with this is, do you think kids will be on the horizon for you? I mean, I think it's possible. that will change things? I think it's possible. I yeah. mean, Layla's still young. Like, I mean, we have time. Um, I mean, you're still young. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right, yeah. I'm still, But like, I'm not the limiter. You know what I mean? Yeah, for, yeah. for youth in terms of procreation. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, she's still young. And if we, we're cool either way. Yeah. So if it happened, like if she got pregnant 
tomorrow like we yep. have a kid um, yeah i mean this is like this yeah. is all like conjecture at the end of the day because like you guys adapted your marriage a little and then it might adapt at the next level it's all levels right yeah i'm so. not i'm not worried about it yeah um I, I think I would I would like to have kids at some point, kind of mm -hmm. like when people who don't who are employed and are like, I'd like to start a business someday. Yeah, it's it's an easy thing to say, you know, yeah. like sounds great, but I'm sure it would be very yeah. different. All right, we're gonna go back to content, and then I got a bunch of bunch yeah. of stuff to, to double down on here. Um, so the going back to the structure of your content team, like a where are they based mostly, and then who are kind of the key players there? We're all U.S. based, okay, and most of them are West Coast because we're on the West Coast, so. Um, I think right now, 100%. Nope, we have one person on the East Coast. Everybody else is either uh, Southern California or Vegas. Yeah. So what what I found is, a the reason I'm asking that is because what I when I've seen us fail on content, it's because we've gone cheap and relied too much on offshore. Yeah. And it's like, dude, where's the strategy? Like grammatical mistakes. They're picking the wrong areas for the hooks, right? right. See so you nodding your head over there, like wrong wrong areas for the hooks. Just bad part, like there is no story yeah. and it's like no wonder everything's falling flat and you look at the metrics right and you're nodding your head it seems like it's happened to you oh i mean early yeah um but i think the, the big thing that everyone messes up with the content and even even the quote going cheap is that like they have to understand brand and that was i mean that's been my big epiphany after post gym launch was i didn't understand brand when i had gym launch like i understand i don't want to say i understand brand but i have a much better idea of it now um and like so like my team right now has so much footage and they could clip a bunch of moments during the vlog days and make me look bad and get a zillion views. Like we could do that, mm -hmm. but that doesn't help me. And so a lot of people will do anything for the algorithm. They become algo whores is what we call it. <laughs> um, which is just like, this is really hot right now. We should make that stuff. But like, mm -hmm. I'm not going to like, if it's not, if it's not on brand for me, if it's not something I'm an expert in, I'm not going to talk about it. Right. And that's, I think that's, that's my one piece of advice for anybody who's like get starting to get into the game of content is like, just talk about stuff you know about. Like, don't worry. Like, just don't pretend to be someone you're not. Like if you, if you're only good at sewing, then just talk about sewing. Don't start making content about how people should invest their money. Like right. just talk about sewing. Let me ask you this. When you produce content now, those full days now, are you very much looking forward to and are you enjoying it when you're creating your content? It really all depends on how much I've slept the night before. Like it's actually like the biggest factor. It's just like how much have I slept the night before? Um, like we just had a recording day recently and I, I, I basically didn't sleep at all the two nights before. Um, and so like that was like I had to use willpower. Um, but most times I don't have to use willpower. I can just I can just rock and roll. Yeah. And so you feel like for the most part, when you let's assume you had a good night of sleep, you feel like you're creating the content that you want to create. I think it's always an evolving process. I mean, I think it's more like a pendulum. I mean, yeah. I think like it's more um, a dichotomy to be managed than a problem to be solved. Yeah. And so there's like stuff that I super, super fuck with exclusively. Mm -hmm. And then there's stuff that the audience absolutely loves and the algorithm loves. And so we just try and find that middle ground. Um, and if anything, we're probably right of center of like, if Alex doesn't like it, he's not gonna keep doing it. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. but like, I'm looking at this on like a 20 year time horizon. And so, you know, we had a video that, uh, that we, that was ready for this week that we were supposed to post. And then we, I saw it and I was like, I don't want to post it. Yeah. And so we didn't have a YouTube video go out this week huh. and I will survive. I like it. And so the now just trying to think from the team's perspective like all the hard work on like the edits the jump cuts the thumbnails and all that um how much effort are you putting into that now because like i actually that that one talk that you did recently i saw the 
I saw the headline change like three times in yeah. the span of a couple hours. So yeah. what's going into all the testing right now? Well, yeah, it's right off the bat. So our, our head of YouTube, um, I mean, we'll still do a good job. We'll still split test like we would for an ad. You know, we'll try different headlines, we'll try different thumbnails. Because at the end of the day, like the mission is to get real business education accessible to everyone. Yeah. And that means that we have to meet people where they're at, which is why I have to tie in more stories. And I don't just like review Excel sheets on <laughs> on YouTube yep. screen shares. You yep. know what I mean? Because like we're, that's not going to help anyone. Yeah. It's In fact, it'll help basically no one. Um, and so we have to make accessible, which is part of the reason the vlog is is like that is, is a, it's a form of consumption that a lot of people can do. Mm -hmm. And so we were going to be doing more of that because more people can consume it and benefit from it. We will play the game just like anyone else does. Um, but as, but the thing is, is like they will send me thumbnails and headlines and I'll be like, that's not that's not true. Yeah. Or um, <laughs> I don't like how this makes the person that we're talking about in the video sound. Yeah. Um, I think it was like, I'll give you an example. We had, a, we had an affiliate video that went out basically explaining how you can use affiliates to promote a business. And I was talking about it within the context of the book that's like my next book that's coming out. Yep. And I think one of the headlines split tests that was sent to me was something like how I got or how I convinced, yeah, I think it was like how I convinced 12,000 people to promote my book. And I was like, if I'm an affiliate and I see that headline, I was like, that doesn't make me feel good. And so I was, so I was talking to you, I was like, we have to think about it. we have to think about it from every angle. So there's there's the Alex brand angle. Does this reinforce or dilute the values that we have in the position that we want to associate ourselves with? Then we have the uh, the audience, like who's actually watching this. Does this make them feel uh, more aligned with that that ultimate mission? Does does this leave them better than they were when they, than they started? And then it's also who's the subject of the content, right? Like I could make content that makes me look fine and the audience would enjoy, but it's me bashing somebody. <laughs> that's not going to be that's i'm never going to do that because yeah. i would never i would never do that if we don't have a win-win-win then it's not right. right and we will keep doing it until we have a win-win-win got it i love that and that that aligns with your values yeah the unimpeachable character yeah base, i'm right? never gonna i'm never gonna throw shit i'll criticize generally and i will praise specifically warren buffett yeah all this so you have mosey media right now you've got the vlog you've got this the new studio coming and then this this podcasting i mean You've got two full days that you record already. I imagine, yeah. I imagine this has to start getting annoying at some point before you're doing a ton of pods, but it makes sense because you're on the book tour right now. So I only do podcasts with people that I feel like doing podcasts with. So if I like, so this is actually, this might be kind of interesting. Um, I will only do, so this is for anybody who's trying to get me on a podcast. I will do podcasts if I think the person who's doing the interviewing has good questions. Mm. So I did one recently with somebody who had no, like a very small audience. Yeah. But I saw or the team had seen that he like did a ton of research on every person would watch like 50 hours of content to ask like really good in-depth questions. Not like, so Danny, tell me your right? origin story. Hmm? It's Danny, right? Yeah, Danny yeah, was yeah, him. Yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, Danny did a great job. Yeah. Um, and so I'm like, and he's doing it absolutely the right way, which mm -hmm. is like, do the work and you can, and you can bat outside of your outside of your league mm -hmm. if you do the work but the flip side is like I've, I've if somebody's got like they've been doing a podcast they've got 500 episodes they've never taken off and the first question that they ask in every video is like so tell me about yourself <laughs> no thank you i'm just not interested like yeah. my audience already has 50 podcasts they can watch of me saying the exact same story yeah and so i would like to there's an element of of there's their audience and I can do the TLDR on that like in two minutes, mm -hmm. which I can understand, but I'd prefer them just provide the context for me so we can actually like rip and roar. Yep. But that's the, 
um, I don't like, I, I enjoy the good conversations. The hard part is just how many do you have? Yeah. Um, and which ones do you pick? Cause like right now I think we get like 10 requests a day yeah. uh, for podcasts. It's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. Um, and I feel bad cause you, I want it. I want to say yes, but mm-hmm. mathematically it can't. Yeah. Um, it's not even like a reschedule. It's just like, it's just a no. Yeah. Um, and so it really comes down to the quality of the interview. Um, and if we can do it in person, I feel like the the in-person podcasts outperform the Zoom podcasts. Yeah. It's literally just like all of the in-persons and then like all of the Zooms. Yeah. So like the best Zoom podcast is probably like about as good as like the worst in-person podcast. Yeah. Dude, I mean, I enjoy these, right? Because these are much longer. I, I think if we did this on Zoom, it'd probably be like an hour or so. Yeah, and you get tired. I don't know why. I feel like yeah. I'm, I'm way more, I'm like way, I, I feel like I tire out faster. I'm like, like less interested. I don't know. Just staring on a screen. Yeah, maybe. Why. Yeah. yeah. Um, I wanted to start to dovetail this into the, the book, but just, I'm curious. You started to compound on all the channels, right? Twitter, LinkedIn, everything. How are you compounding? Do, are you like, you're a numbers guy too, like you're tracking the month over month growth. Like yeah. how are you looking on those? I see the compounding as a consequence of what we're doing rather than the goal. Um, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So like we're human and we love having things that we can measure and the more ways you measure, the more we can win. So I can appreciate that. But like we're big on if we have a piece of content that we're like, this is going to really help someone. And even if it's not super wide and we know it's not going to get, it's not going to perform, we'll, we'll, we'll push it for sure. And so it's, I think it's really been all about the too good to fail is like, as long as we, we make sure that what we are putting out is high quality and that I am proud to have it out there. Um, it's kind of like the rest will take care of itself. Like we will do our jobs. We will do a good job. We will do all of the basics and we will do it every time. And if we do that on a long enough time horizon, we will get the result we want. Yeah. Makes sense. And as you're talking, I just, for whatever reason, I just started thinking about your Twitter workflow, which I think is probably the most interesting to you because you're, you're right. It's the only right? one I do. Yeah. yeah. The only one that I'm directly posting. Yeah. Yeah, you, yeah. you take it a poop while you're doing it or like, what do you, no, you, actually, um, where do these thoughts come from? <laughs> So there are two, two places. One is I wake up with them. Yeah. So I usually wake up with like three or four tweets in my head and I won't usually even get out of bed until I put them in. That is nuts. And so, yeah, so like you'll see all like a lot of my tweets are front loaded for the day. because But they're super them. refined too. I think Twitter low key is the single greatest tool for learning how to write. Yeah. Because it forces you to have word concision and you get immediate feedback. Mm-hmm. And so you like. Don't be mean hits feel so good. But like right? just, <laughs> just the feedback on the language. Yeah. You know what I mean? You get yeah. to learn really quickly and it's based on your words. Mm-hmm. So I think like, there are two things that have improved my writing more than anything. Hemingway, the app, mm. and Twitter. Like the two things that have improved my writing the most. You use Hemingway to tweet? No, no, no. But like okay. when I wrote, like when I write the book, yeah. that has helped me and, and Twitter. Got it. Um, but you said so the so from a and the, the second place that I do it is when things come up naturally during the day. And yep. so I'll say something on a meeting and, I, and like literally like the team will be like, that's a tweet, and then yep. I'll just I'll just fire it off. Yep. Like, but there's there's no um there's no cadence, there's no ghostwriters, there's no like you'll also see two days in a row where I won't tweet at all. So yep. like it's Got just it. whatever. And some days I'll tweet like eleven times. Yeah. Like it's just if I'm in the zone. Makes sense. Um I think there's a lot of wisdom there. I, I just I think there's a lot of beauty in the written word. And if you can articulate yourself that way, then it's like your next level. Well, dude, I had a guy, um, a really, a really successful uh tech entrepreneur. So he had had two unicorn exits. So mm-hmm. like really successful, hit me up on Twitter and we hopped on a Zoom call. And he was like, dude, so what's your Twitter strategy? Uh, are you like in one of these engagement groups? And I was like, no. And he's like, oh, dude, I won't tell anybody. Like, just like, what's the, <laughs> like, what's the, what's the playbook? And I was like, I tweet shit as I think of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he, yeah. he just like, 
he asked like three or four times, like he just wouldn't believe it. I'm like, yeah. that's what it is. And some, and you'll notice because the tweets are usually like themed because yeah. it's just like top of mind. So if I'm feeling, because usually I'm tweeting to myself and that's what people mm -hmm. don't get. Like my tweets are me trying to bang mm -hmm. myself in the mm -hmm. head and be like, dude, like be fucking patient or like relax. Yep. Like, you know, whatever it is or like you don't need to care about this person's opinion. Yep. And so like they're so violent because I'm in the moment of discomfort yep. and I write that to myself to get over the moment and move yep. on with my day. Dude, that's so fast. It's like what we'll talk about in, in you, your 80 year old self mentoring you, but it's, yeah. it's, it, it's weird how we use it in our own, like you use it to beat yourself beat yourself up or no, no, sorry. I use it to beat myself up sometimes, right? Yeah. You're talking to yourself just to like, it's like reminders for yourself, right? And Gary is like to motivate people, right? Yeah. So it's just interesting. But okay, so how does, now the first book that you released, $100 million offers, you sold what, how many copies? I think it's about 500,000. 500, that's a lot, right? Um, Like what, I saw like 12,000 positive five-star reviews or something. Just across 16. 16,000, yeah. okay, that's I crazy. just saw it, that's why I yeah. No advertising, right? This, this, by the way, let me just rewind for a second. The guy that got on a Zoom call with you, he wouldn't believe it. It's like, when your shit's so good, you don't need to game the system. That is already the game. Too good to fail. You that's know what the, I mean? Like, that's the line. Like, yeah. Too good to fail. Yeah. I had, a, I had a, a roommate of mine who said that. I was like, what? Because this is way back when I had my gyms. Mm -hmm. um, and he, I only had one gym, so like way back in the day. Yeah. And he had an online business. So it was like way early, a decade yeah. ago, right? Yeah. And I was like, so what's your strategy? For, and he was like, he was doing like blogging SEO stuff back mm -hmm. then. And he said that statement to me. And he was like, I don't do anything else. He's like, I just make sure that my articles are so exceptional that people share them. Mm -hmm. And he would spend two weeks on one article, but then they would crush and get shared all over the place. And now he has a business probably worth like 60, 70 million now. Wow. And we were just like roommates in a house, like just right. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. So back to the book. So yeah. you did the first one. What did you, I mean, it's a labor of love first. Anybody that's written a book before, you know Horrible. it's a labor of love. And plus, use you like 10x, 20x just mm -hmm. to make sure it's damn good. First mm -hmm. book was amazing, right? Mm -hmm. What made you so quickly want to go to the next one? And what are you looking to get out of it? it man, writing books is like such not a good use of time. <laughs> yeah. um, as much like... It's, it's, it's like, it's something it's, it's honestly like a guilty pleasure. Like I, it takes too much of my time and I enjoy it. Cause a lot of people don't know this about my background, but like I was the vice as vice editor of the, um, of the newspaper. I was the editor in chief of the literary magazine. I got a writing scholarship going into college. Like I've been writing a long time and mm -hmm. I enjoy writing. Um, and so this is the only thing that I get to marry my two loves where like, I love writing and I love business. Yeah. And so it's like, it's my like chief form of expression. That's why Twitter is kind of like a microcosm of that. Um, but the point of $100 million leads was to answer one question. And uh, the first one, $100 million offers, answered the question, what do I sell? Leads answers the question, who do I sell it to? And so most people, once they have something to sell, they're like, okay, now what? And this book pretty much walks you through how to get your, I mean, basically this book can get most people to a few million dollars a year. Um, that, I mean, that's it. And so I see this, like the books are my absolute long game. Because the amount of guys that I see every single day that stop me, like when we're walking, who are like, dude, I'm 21, I've got my thing, I'm doing, you know, 70 grand a month, and you're on my vision board. As soon as I cross a million dollars in profit, like I'm hitting you up. And so, like, there are so many of those guys right now who are like incubating that I know in three years, five years, 10 years are gonna hit that. And I just wanna be the first person they call. Right. And that's it. And Top but like, that's mind. a long, it's my longest game. Yeah. Like the, the books are my absolute, which is why I spend so much time on them because 
if they're not going to be good enough to still be referred to and sold in a decade, there's no point in me writing it today. Yeah. Like what, what I, the book launch money, like it costs me more money to put the event on than I'm probably going to make from the book. Right. The, you know what I mean? And the media team, my, my losing money media team. No, you guys, are, you guys are awesome. Um, writing a book to make money off of a book is possibly the worst monetization vehicle of all time. It's a physical product. You have a 16 week lead time. Mm -hmm. You have to manage inventory accounts. You make no money on it. You have to sell it on a platform that takes 80% of the money, or you have to go to a publisher that also takes 80% of the money. Like yeah. there's no winning from a money. Like yeah. the percentage of like the offers is top, top 100 audible books still on Amazon two years later and top 1000 physical books. Wow. There's there's like 60 there's I think 60 million titles. There's 6 or 60 million. That's a big difference obviously, but a lot of yeah. books on Amazon. And so it's a 0.0001% book and like it does I mean it makes money, but like it makes less than any of my portfolio companies yeah. to give like a, a, yeah. a reference of scale. Yeah, I mean you're not retiring from the Right, book. no. Yeah. I mean I, if I spent no money, you know what I mean like yeah, yeah, yeah. Any of the companies we have makes more money in the book. Right. Yeah. <laughs> makes sense. I mean, but it's still, it's like, it lives on forever. And that's cool. Yeah. And I think that's, that's like the, like, if I were to die tomorrow, the thing I'd be most proud of is the books. Because I knew that that would be the thing that would outlive me the longest. Yeah. Which is interesting. We'll come back to the book in a second. But I think you talked about how you don't believe in the concept of, of legacy. Yeah. Right. Um, Kind of is your legacy. In the formal sense. Yeah, yeah. I don't believe in individual legacy. Yeah. Um, Can you expand? I do, yeah. Yeah. So like. I don't believe in your name being passed on for thousands of generations. I mean, like to prove the point, do you know what your great, great, great grandfather's name was? Probably no. not. Right. And so like, that's not even that many generations back. And so to have like the ego and the thinking that like you're somehow like your progeny are, and even if you somehow became king of the world yeah. and you did have that, they wouldn't know who you were. Yeah. You would just be like another historical figure that they could then trace their bloodline back to. And then if you do the math on how related you are to them, like if you go, you know, 0.5 to the eighth, I mean, you're you're not related. You're just another human, and in yeah. that to that degree, then it then relation generalizes to all of humanity, and then you just become yeah. a humanitarian. In which yeah. case, I am uh, pro legacy from that perspective, and I think that the ultimate legacy is education, because all of us here are sitting here in a house full of inventions that other people that we don't know invented and made our lives better, and that I think is like the ultimate legacy for humanity is that we just fall and someone picks up the baton where we left off and yep. carries it but like i think the ultimate wasted life is one where you learn lessons and pass it on to no one and yep. force someone to quite truly reinvent the wheel you know naval has um so the book he recommends the most is the i think it's the beginning of infinity or something okay. like that yeah david deutsch or whatever I haven't read it. so th this dude and it's like a super dense read um <laughs> but like i haven't completed it but this guy's like you know w what is wealth mm -hmm. and wealth is knowledge to your point you just said it's education right like that is the thing that continues to compound beyond you and me it lasts beyond money yeah and like that is what should matter like how do we make people wealthy we educate them and if you think about the the reverse of that too if you had a lot of money and you gave it to someone how would you guarantee that they lose the money you have them completely uneducated and completely mm -hmm. ignorant and so there's a there's i think it's sanskrit so it's a super old like ism but it says if you have a bad son there's no point in saving money. If you have a good son, there's no point in saving money. Because if you have the good son, he'll take care of himself. If you have a bad son, he's gonna squander everything you have, mm -hmm. which basically means that at no point does it ever matter what you accumulate because either you passed on education, yeah. in which case they never needed you to begin with, or you pass on no education and they're yeah. gonna lose everything you had. That's so good. 
But I, this is the thing. You look at all the, the, the wealthy people. They can't help themselves. They have to give it to your kids. And we don't have kids yet, right? But I suspect if we have kids, right, it's just like you probably end up giving it to the kids, yeah. right? Well, I think um, I really like thinking of like, I mean, and I'll probably be different when I have children, but I don't know how different. People will be surprised. Um if like if I wanted to create a human that had certain character traits, I would then think, okay, what are the what are the experiences someone has to go through to have that happen? Mm -hmm. And I would try and reverse engineer as many of those as I could. And like having uber wealth throughout your entire life and having a guaranteed ease of of eating and living and whatever is a great way to guarantee not guarantee is a great way to increase the likelihood that someone does not turn out good. Yeah. And so I wouldn't want to spend the rest of my life after they're twenty with a bunch of people I didn't like. And so I would rather have them suffer to become the types of people that I'd want to spend the rest of my life with. I'm with you, man. It's, uh, I mean, let's let's rewind to our childhoods real quick because we, it's, for me, tiger mom, right? It's, it's difficult. You're never good enough, right? Yeah. And so I think similar kind of story for you. Um, do you want to talk about maybe how your childhood shaped you into who you are? Because I feel like there's part yeah. of you that's really compassionate, but yeah. then there's the other side that's really tough on yourself and sometimes yeah. tough on other people too. Yeah. Well, as a quick side note on this, um, I think a lot because I've had this question in different forms on a couple of podcasts about like the struggle growing up, et cetera, and how that creates success now. Mm. But I really think it's people suffer during childhood. Some people are successful and some people aren't. Like there's just as many people or not even way more people who have terrible childhoods and then don't do anything out of it. That's true. And so I don't, to, to point back to a terrible childhood and say, not that, that I had a terrible childhood, but like, to tough times yeah. and say that that is why I am here. Mm -hmm. The why is really difficult and I don't think anyone can answer the question. I just know that I do these things because I've been reinforced for doing them. And so that's like the only rule or law of humanity that I see is that you either rewarded or punishment, punished yeah. for doing the things that you've done yeah. and you either avoid things you've been punished for in the past and, been, and you keep doing things you're rewarded for. And so like I keep working harder and harder on things because my minimum standard continues to rise because the more I raise that minimum standard, the better the things that I have are and the more reinforced I am for working hard on the things that I work on. Which brings me to a quote over here. Most people keep fighting the same boss, but the boss is being able to stick with it. Yeah. And you had to learn that the hard way, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and here, I'll give you another one over here. I'll give you your, your moseyisms. Is that a thing? <laughs> moseyisms? Um, to do something epic, you have to convince yourself to do the same thing for a long period of time without telling yourself that you're smarter than you are. This talk that you did, um, I think the talk, the, I'm paraphrasing here, was how you're, th this will change change how you think about money or something sure. like that right um but this talk was really about focus at the end of the day and you went to yogurt land and yeah. decided that you had to redo your talk and focus the talk on focus what, what happened there yeah and all these guys who were coming up to, so i so i got so i was supposed to speak at this event and I, i'd already finished the the presentation and Part of the reason that I don't speak very much is because on stages, um, one, I don't like how people use my face to promote because again, associations yeah. I don't want. Yeah. Um, but also because, I mean, to just give this to everybody else, like a lot of people will promote with my face and then people will buy whatever the person who's at the event is selling right. and I have no association Control. or anything and I have no way to, I don't have the time to do the due diligence on figuring the person out. So like if I speak somewhere, it's not because I'm endorsing the person. But that being said, um, I went to the yogurt land and like, eight or nine people were in the area for the next day and they sat around us and I spent like 60 minutes talking to all these guys and it became really clear that all of them were distracted. They were all doing multiple things, trying to, like they, they, they subscribe to the single fallacy that I think is number one in new entrepreneurs, which is the, uh, I'll see which one works yeah. fallacy. Yeah. And the reality is that 
any of them could work, but the only one that will work is the one that you work on. And so you have to commit to one of them because it's just, it's arrogant to think that you going 25% in on four things is because you are competing in a real marketplace against somebody else that's in that space. And to think that your 25% is going to do anything against someone's hundred percent. It's just arrogant. And so, um, and one of the definitions of commitment that I like a lot is the elimination of alternatives. And so if you want to be committed to something, then you have to eliminate alternatives. And some people use, uh, you know, dicadere, which is the Latin root of decide, which just means to kill off, which is like, what are we killing off? And I think, um, it's kind of like pruning a tree. Uh, and when I realized that it's like, you ha- there's only so much nutrients in the soil. There are only so many minutes in the day, so much literal attention and focus that you can allocate. And if anyone's ever worked on one project for a long period of time, you realize that you start peeling back layers and getting a depth of understanding that you can never get when you're on the surface level looking at multiple things. You're barely being reactive and setting out fires. You can never make progress yep. and like drive. And I think that like, this is a Warren Buffett quote to, to give the, the goat his, his due. Um, <laughs> he said the difference between successful people and really successful people is that really successful people say no to almost everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's, it's just taking me a very long time to learn that. And I continue to repeat it in my tweets because it's still just as hard for me now as it was then. It's yeah. because the thing is, is that the opportunities I have to say no to now are things that I would have given my left nut for, you know, <laughs> a decade ago. Uh, and so it's, it's just, it's continue like the bar has continued to rise on what I have to say no to. And it's hard the whole way through. And one of the big unlocks for me has been judging myself based on my actions and not my feelings, meaning I can feel impatient, but still do the patient thing. So I might still want this to go faster and be upset yeah. that it's not going faster. As long as they don't act on that impulse, I can still be a patient person. Yeah. And so to the same degree with focus, I might be interested and love jamming with the guys on like, what if we did this? What if we did that? What if we did that? But as long as I don't say, all right, buy the URL, let's get the bank set up, let's go. As long as I don't do that, then like we're still focused on the one thing that matters most. It, it must be tough because it's you're you're trying to educate people on the pain that you've been through, right? Again, being punched in the gut, yeah. nine things, right? But still, like, I, I don't know about you, but in, in my early 20s, I remember, like, yeah, focus, focus. And I would read, you know, Warren Buffett, Steve, uh, not Steve Jobs, Warren Buffett, um, you know, Bill Gates. Yeah, the, the one thing is focus, right? Like, you know, and but then it's like, no, no, no. But like, I'm better. I'm smarter than that, right? And that You have that quote in here. It's like thinking that you're smarter than you are. So I feel like it's as much as we try to teach people, sometimes it's like they just need to get punched themselves. I think there's a difference between knowing that and knowing how. So like no, going through an experience, unfortunately, teaches you in a different way than knowing that something happens. Or like, I know, mm-hmm. I, know I, I know that this works this way. But if I said, like, I know how a business works, but it's like, but you, you know what to do, but you've never done it. And right. so until you've actually done it, you think you know what to do until you go through it. And so I think that's like that experiential knowledge, which is honestly, I think the base of the content, what makes the difference between Ken McElroy's and hopefully our content, yep. which is like people can see a depth of understanding that comes from experience. Like yes. one of my favorite quotes from L.H. Hardwick is, no man within experience is ever at the mercy of a man with an opinion. Right. And until someone's done it, all they have is an opinion. And if you have done it, they are irrelevant. Like someone's like, well, it doesn't work that way. I'm like, have you done it? And they're like, no. And I'm like, your opinion does not matter. (laughs) Dude, I I just remember uh, two, three years ago, one of the guys that that was leading my marketing team, he's like, 
So we'd have this um, engagement tool called 15.5 and you could just, uh, here's how the week went. You know, here's what I'm learning right now. And every week it's like watching Hermosi videos, watching Hermosi videos. And this is when you had, this is when you were just like maybe 20,000 subscribers yeah, right, or whatever, yeah. right? But it was because of the depth of the content that yeah. you have where it was just so, and then I started watching it and it's, it's like, then it's like all the thumbnails on YouTube started, the recommendations become, started becoming yeah. you. I was like, holy shit. And that's how you started to compound, right? Because yeah. it's, it's good stuff. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's um, it's I think it's being it's being really honest with yourself about you know we have the investors circle of competence right. Yep. I think there's a content circle of competence that you have to know if it's not in this circle, I shouldn't talk about it. And that's not because of brand, and that's not because of any of the fancy stuff. It's just because you don't know it. Mm -hmm. And like anything that you have to add that's outside of the circle of competence will often be a generalization that you heard from someone else. Right. And if it's a generalization from someone else then that's their opinion and not yours. Right. And so we want first principles, first experience type content. And so N equals one, right? Or one of zero content, as we say. Um, and that's the litmus test. Is like, is it in that, is it, is it something we know from experience? And I, I had this video, I think the, the, the long that I had right before this was my explanation of how to get to 10 million plus a month. Mm -hmm. um, and I talked about, I was like, and I think this is how we get to 100 million a month. Um, I don't know that because I haven't been there yet. But I'm, this is my current plan of how to get there. And somebody commented something, I can't remember what it was, but it's something like, uh, well, you have no idea. I can I, I can coach you on it, like whatever. Right? <laughs> um, but the thing is, is like, it. I will only talk about retrospect. Right. Like I will only talk about things that I have done because I can speak confidently on them. And if mm -hmm. someone says, Jim Launch wasn't a company, it doesn't bother me because it's yeah. it's like saying like, you didn't have oatmeal for breakfast. I'm like, yeah. I mean, I did, so okay. And that's <laughs> that's what, in my opinion, has allowed me to f not suffer from the the many inevitable con you know comments, whatever you get from the, the, the masses mm -hmm. of people who don't know you. Um, because if someone says, hey, Alex, you're short, I know that's not true. Uh -huh. And so it doesn't, it doesn't hit me. The only ones that hurt are the ones that you feel like have an element of truth. And so if there's an element of truth, it means that I probably stepped out of my circle of competence. And I think getting stung outside of my circle has really taught me, at least for me, to stay in my world of like, these are the few things yeah. that I know, and that is what I'll talk about. You know, I, interestingly enough, I mean, speaking of circle of competence, I think there's also a circle of competence when it comes to content creation. Like, you should stick to the format that you understand initially sure. before expanding out, right? And so I really enjoy this, but maybe I'm not the best at, you know, uh, telling long form stories or something sure. like that right um so i think it's like it really do whatever works for you play your cards yeah 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 um so going back to the book you got this big launch strategy happening right yeah. now it's like the super bowl like yeah. what what can you tell us about that what's going on how much you spend yeah, yeah let's go tons about it so um 100 million dollar offers the first book I'm, I'm the goal with every book was to be a meta book meaning I wanted to use the book to demonstrate the ideas in the book as proof that the ideas worked. And so $100 million offers, how to make offers so good people feel stupid saying no, was supposed to in and of itself be an offer so good people feel stupid saying no. And so I made the book $2 on Kindle and I um, added in a course that most people would sell for one to $5,000 on top of it and made it for free on my site, not behind an opt-in wall, just made it for free for everyone with downloads and everything. Um, and the idea was, if it is good enough, people will share it. And that's more or less what ended up happening. And so with $100 million leads, the meta concept is not about the offer. The meta concept within leads is advertising. 
and how to get leads. Right. And so the 24 months that I did post the offers book was all towards the leads book. Mm. And so the last 24 months was, well, if I'm going to talk about how to build an audience, then I have to build an audience. If I'm going to talk about how to run paid ads, I have to build, I have to run paid ads. If I'm going to talk about having affiliates, I have to have affiliates. And so there's eight methods of advertising that I talk about in the book. Right. And I use all eight specifically to promote the book to prove that all eight methods work. Ah. And so when we go live at the event, I will break down, here was our affiliate strategy. This is how many affiliates we had. This is how many of you are here from affiliates. This is how, uh, this is our paid, paid, paid ad strategy. These are the scripts I use, which is directly from this page. This is the landing page I use, which is directly from this page. And it got this many of you guys here. I got this much content, which is how many we put out over this period of time. This is the resulting impressions. This is how many of you are here from that. And so I wanted to just give proof that these concepts worked 10 years ago and they work today and they'll work in a hundred years because people won't change. The platforms will, but the principles will remain the same. Yeah. So, I mean, you're basically showing, hey, like, I'm showing you this in the book and I'm meta. This is how it works, right? Yeah. But by the way, for the affiliates, what, what are they getting out of this? I mean, it's a $2 book. Like, well, yeah, yeah, what's yeah. in it for them? Yeah. Um, and actually the the Kindle on this one is $10 huh? because the point was not to be an offer. The okay. point was to be a leads thing. Got it. Right. And the next book will be a meta concept on that. Okay. So every book will have its own yeah. unique thing. Anyways. Um, so with the affiliates, I think of affiliates in kind of two tiers. Uh, now, when I make a true affiliate strategy for a business, there's usually three. There's usually a first level, which is the base level that everybody starts at. There's the next level, which is an activation point level, which is whatever activation point is for you in your business. You make that the next kicker for their income or whatever the benefit is. And then you have your like top producer level. And so those are usually the best three. And we paid a gazillion dollars to consultants who just only set up affiliate structures. And that's what they use. They're like always three. These are the three. And there you go. There's a nugget for you. Um, let me save you a hundred grand. Yep. Uh, that's how you set up affiliate setups. But with this book, I have two levels. If you don't have a massive audience, bring 10 friends. That's it. So bring 10, 10 people from your company, bring your family, bring your cousins, whatever it is, bring 10 people. And I'll give you two chapters that I'm not releasing with the book. Okay. So that's the, that's the benefit for that level. For the top level, those are going to be people who have audiences, right? Who have email lists, have subscribers, et cetera. And so for them, I wanted it to be more competitive. And so for them at the top 10, I'm going to do an AMA live with their audience with them and they can ask whatever they want. And the reason I chose that specific benefit for them was that if I said, hey, I'm giving a Lamborghini or I'm giving a car to the top 10 people, right? If they go to their audience and say, hey, attend this thing so I can win this car, mm. that's them extracting goodwill from the audience. Right. And I don't want them to do that for me. And so I was like, how can I also use the concepts that I preach for them? And so I made it an AMA so that their audience clicking their affiliate link benefits their audience. Because if I click Johnny's link and we win, then we get the time to do the AMA. And so he doesn't, Johnny or whoever the affiliate is, doesn't extract goodwill for, or withdraw goodwill from their audience by, by promoting my thing. And so that way I wanted it to be an easy thing for people to promote. So it would just be a net benefit. So it didn't have to like work into their promotion calendar or be like, like how, what kind of split am I? Cause there's no financial incentive for the, for this. Mm -hmm. And I also did that because operationally, Got it. you know, 12,000, is a pain. Um, <laughs> and so it was yep. easier to do it that way. Interesting. I, and these people are willing to promote too, because of all the goodwill that you've built up. And I think that's really interesting important for people to understand. And probably, um, brand association. Yeah. Like if, for sure, like real time, like that yep. was the thing that I, I'm still consistently learning and am impressed by 
how branding works. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that was also an element of it. So, and the AMAs that you're doing, you're doing basically 10 separate MAs, yeah. AMAs? Okay, 10 separate it. ones. So it. it's totally like their audience. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that's, and I don't do a lot of these yeah. um, by percentage of requests. And yeah. so for many of them, this is like the only shot that they'll probably have to, to do that. And so I yeah. wanted to make it cool and awesome. Got it. How many hours do you think you put into this launch? How much do you think you've spent so far? I've spent a million bucks in cash on the event um, so far. Yeah. Probably more, honestly. I don't even Yeah, it's been probably more. <laughs> um, and then, so right now we have like 405 or 10,000 people registered okay. for the event, which is pretty nuts. It's like seven NFL stadiums. Dude, I imagine attendee attendance rate has to be pretty high too. I hope so. Yeah. Well, you know, I this is the first time, you know, that we've done anything like this big. Um, so yeah, we've spent, spent that much money. And then from a time perspective, this has been, if you include the writing of the book, I mean, it's, I've got 2000 hours into this. Yeah. So if we don't include writing the book, um, the presentation that I'm giving, um, I've spent, I probably put 200 hours into it. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I, I will do the work. And so I made the presentation and this, and now I feel like I have the process down. So I will share this with you. So I'm a big fan of, uh, outworking yourself out, right? Okay. Like you, you're never nervous if you're fully prepared. And so I don't want to be nervous for this thing. And if anything, I just want to be excited about it, which I am. Um, but the way I approached it was I made the first version of the presentation and then I presented it and I recorded it. And then I watched the recording with the deck up and I pause it when every time there's a mess up and I fix the deck and then I play, fix, play, fix, play, fix. Um, and then once I have the new fixed one, I go top to bottom in my head and then I go top to bottom, record it out loud, pause, fix, pause, fix, pause, fix. And so right now, um, I do that. I do one full cycle of that every day. Um, and I started preparing wow. for that um, three weeks out. I don't know if people are, maybe they are seeing this, but from my observation here is that you just mentioned, I will do the work. And I think one of your other quotes was like, the work needs doing, right? But then, and then you tie it in with really not even a 10X effort, but to me, it seems like a 100X effort. Totally. Just people aren't willing to go that far, yeah. right? But uh, what's interesting is that like, if you work a hundred times harder, you can sometimes get like a million times the payout. Mm -hmm. And so like the the top end of work still has disproportionate payoffs. And so I don't even, I don't even, like there are diminishing returns, but there's a point where you actually get like outsized returns for the effort. Because like, if you think about it from like a Olympic racing perspective, like if I work, you know, 10 times more than everybody else does, but I get gold and the next guy gets silver, the difference between gold and silver in running is everything. Mm -hmm even though it's the 10th of a second. Right. And so from an absolute perspective, there's diminishing returns. But from a relative perspective, I think you have exponential returns from being the best. From right. being number, the difference between number one and number two can be, you know, like Uber and Lyft, like the mm -hmm. difference is 10x uh, the size. And so I, I have now been reinforced enough times of how much more work is required to do something excellent that now I understand it. Yeah. And I think the one thing that has continued to level up over time for me, and this is also for the audience, is that like, you don't even know how much you can work. Like you think you know how much you can work until you like really, really work. And like with this presentation, I was like, I will not be the reason this is not good. What do you think changed your perspective, like flipped you into working 100x harder? I think just my standards have gone up. Like I looked at the first presentation I ever gave and it's like, it's embarrassing. I mean, it's truly embarrassing. Yeah. I think it has like 19 slides with like four bullets on each slide. And I remember yeah. being, I remember thinking, 
man, I spend a lot of time on this. And a lot of time to me back then was like, I spent a day on it, <laughs> like a full day, like yeah. eight hours. Yeah. That's and, still me right now. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think that a little moniker that I have is just count in hundreds. It's like, how many hundreds of hours did you spend on something? Because like when you start counting in hundreds, like the the depth of understanding of something goes to such a such a large degree. And it's like if I were to tell someone to edit a video, right, like a short clip, and I said, hey, um, edit this clip uh, in 30 minutes, right, and give it back to me. And I was like, and they give it back to me. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to edit it yet. If I give you another 30 minutes, could you make it better? And they're usually like, I could make it better mm -hmm. another 30. So I give it back to them, like, give it back to me another 30. So it gives it back to me another 30. And I say, okay. If I give you two more hours, do you think you'd make it better? There's a point to this. Yep. He's like, yeah, I think I'd make it better. Comes back to me. I say, okay, what if I gave you two weeks? You're like, well, then I would totally approach it differently. I'd probably restructure the whole thing. Like, mm -hmm. because the the amount of time, sure, work does expand to the amount of time that you allow it. Right. But I deem work done when there's nothing else that I can do to make it better, that there's nothing else that I know of that I can make this better. Right. Um, and that was the point that I got back with the book. Like I did 19 drafts, I did four full rewrites. And the last version that has gone out, when I, I you know, read it front to back so many times now, like there was, I was like, I can't take anything else out and I can't add anything to it and I can't make anything clear. And I've written this whole thing in a third grade reading level and I've added 106 hand-drawn images into this. There's nothing else I can do. And if it does not succeed, that's fine, yeah. but it will not be for lack of effort. Let me ask you this then, what would be considered success for this book launch? It'll be successful the moment I step on stage. I genuinely believe this, like truly. I'll have one by the time that it happens because I, I know what I feel like when I walk on stage and I have done everything in my power, mm. everything. Not some of the things or most of the things, but there is nothing else that I can conceive of yeah. to make this better. And then at that point, if any, like, then the, the chips will fall where they are and I will control the controllables. And so that's, that has, that has helped me get through like some of the, the anxieties and things like that, that happened earlier on in my career around these types of things. Yeah. But the whole, like the reason I have the outwork yourself doubt, like give yourself a stack of undeniable proof that you are who you say you are. Like if I say that I will, I will do my job, then I will not make, I will make sure that I have done everything in my power, which also means, and this is the underlying thing is that it means I can't do a lot of stuff. And that's the, that's the real cost of excellence is all the things that you want to try that you can't do because excellence has a huge price tag associated with it, which is how much time you have to put into one thing. Totally. And you actually gave this example when it comes to writing a world-class book there. Yeah. I think the analogy you shared was like, you know, there's a difference between like a 7.5 star and a 9.5 star yeah. book or whatever it is. It's like a hundred X more work. Yeah. Right. What, what was the analogy? Yeah. There? I mean, it's, it's exactly that. Like, to go from a you know like from a five to a seven is like twice the work. To go from a seven to a nine is like a hundred times the work. Yep. It's so much more work. It's an asymptote when it comes to yep. work and excellence. It's a power loss. Yeah. But yeah. But the difference like but the difference between a nine and a half book and a nine point nine book on Amazon is the difference between you having one book that you can retire on for the rest of your life. Like the offers book in sales, I think does around three hundred thousand a month. Which is crazy good. Yeah. as a book. Yeah. As a book. That, that's your take, wild. right? Huh? That's your take. No, right? that's not my take. That's, that's sales. That's that, revenue, yeah, yeah. right? Then Amazon yeah. has his has his way with it. Um, <laughs> and takes the vast majority of it. But yeah. po point being is like for the vast majority, I think it is about a million bucks a year. Yeah. Net. Great. Um, but for the vast majority of people, like that I think is actually kind of encouraging. Is like you can put an unbelievable amount of work into one thing 
mm-hmm. and make it so good that it will pay you for the rest of your life. Like you don't yep. like you could work a job, you could have a career, you could do all these things, but like if you build one amazing product that people will consistently buy and tell their friends about, you don't have to work again. And I think that like understanding that I've now applied and honestly the offers book was the first probably the biggest real life example I had where I could control every variable. Like yep. in a business you can't control every variable. But in and even in like a tech product, I'm not the coder or whatever. Yep. Like I was like I can code every page of this. I did the drawings, I did the audible, mm. I wrote the words, I designed the cover, like everything. Yep. And so I can make sure that it's excellent from my perspective. And then hopefully the the audience will agree. I love it. and, and- that uh, acquisition.com slash leads, is that going to be an evergreen page or is it going to disappear at some point? Oh, I mean, it'll always reroute to probably something about the books. So okay. yeah, acquisition.com forward slash leads. Got it. Let me ask you this. I think for $100 million offers, that book is very lindy. And what I mean by that for the audience is that, you know, it's that like how to win friends and influence people. It's been around for over 100 years. It's going to be around for another 100 years. I think your book is written that way for that one. I think leads might be a little more difficult because you might be talking about, no, no, you've written it, Lindy. Dude, that's why it was so hard. There you go. Think about, I mean, like I had to, the, so, so to give context, leads has been probably 10 times the work of offers. Like, and it was because I had to rewrite it so many times and, and, and thinking about what topics I was going to get into and what topics I wasn't going to get into. And then how, at what level do I chunk up or chunk down? Uh, from tactics around advertising, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so explaining the concepts, like I call it the core four, but there's only four things you can do to let other people know about your stuff. You can message people one-on-one who you know, so it's warm reach outs. You can message people one-on-one who you don't know, that's cold reach outs. Mm-hmm. You can post one-to-many to people who know you, which is uh, posting content. And you can post one-to-many to people who don't know you, which is running paid ads. That's it. That's all you can do. There's nothing else. And if you're not doing those things, then people won't find out about your stuff. And so the platforms change, the principles remain the same. And so that was the, but like I had to cover platforms, media, formats, placements, targeting, Mm -hmm. cold emails, cold calls, DMs. Like there were so many (coughs) things that I had to cover in one book. I will, I will probably never bite off so much again in terms of narrowing the scope of the book. But now that I did for this, it really, the the problem set that this book answers is literally just one step in the funnel, which is a lead is a person that you can contact. That is the definition of it, as I define it. An engaged lead is a person you can contact who has shown interest in the stuff you sell. And the entire point of this book is to get someone from a person you can contact to get them engaged. Got it. That is it. That is the whole problem of the entire book. And then like, and that's it. And it it self-destructs. It (laughs) self-destructs. You got offers, you got leads. Can you yeah. talk about the next one? It's, it's I won't three, share right? the name yet. Yeah, okay. yeah. But, uh, but it's green. Okay. It's green. All right. You got <laughs> It'll it. be a green book. <laughs> purple, purple, wait, blue, yeah. purple, green. Okay. Purple, blue. Purple, blue. Okay, got yeah. it, got it, got it. Um, just for the audience to know, it's typically when you write a book, it's usually five to seven drafts, right? And when I when my editor first told me that, it's like, oh, come on, I'll be done in one draft, right? No, it's seven on my end. You did 19. That's, that's way more... And, it sounds like you rewrote a couple of times too. Four full rewrites, like end to end rewrites. That's crazy. I, I think I just give up. It was hard. But, um, it, was very hard. it was really hard. Yeah. But the work needs doing. Um, and I'll tell you what my editor said when I would get to these points where I would just like throw out my hands and be like, dude, I don't care. How close? I don't need to make the money. Like, I don't like whatever. You know, you're close to giving up a couple of times. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, everybody has bad days. Yeah. And he, he, he said, that he gave me this visual that like, just like seared into my mind. He was like, there's a 17 year old kid in Pakistan who has a goat who's going to be sleeping with this book under his pillow. He's like, do it for him. Wow. And I was like, 
I was like, all right, that's good. So we get back and we, and, and we, you know, I was like, dude, they can figure this part out. And he's like, no, they can't. Yeah. He's like, you'll sell the book no matter what. And he's like, but they won't get it. Mm. And then I was, so then it's like back to the drawing board. How can I re think through this framework so that I can make it yeah. easy and then make the visual match the words and make it under third grade and all the way through was tough. Dude, I mean, that just goes to show you too, because earlier you talked about your mission around the, the education piece, right? Yeah. And sometimes no matter how strong your mission is, you start to waver a little bit, right? Yeah. And you need heroes like your editor to come and yeah. like, oh, recalibrate. Yeah. Yeah. This one's interesting. So the guy I had lunch with today, um, we had been in these masterminds before and in our mid twenties or so, it's like, yeah, tactics, you need a dopamine hits right now. Oh, that feels good. Right. Split um, test. Yeah. Split test. You know, there's this new channel over here. You got to yeah. talk to this person. But then as we get older, it's like, no, 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 it's not about the tactics. It's just about hiring good people. Right. Yeah. Like, is there anything you want to, I mean, I, I thought it'd be good to chat about with you here because after they read the books, sure. They'll pick up the strategies, the tactics, yeah. But really, once they get a certain level, it's like... Yeah. I mean, it's all about who. You know, I mean, there's that... The title was that book, Who Not How. Yep. I mean, it kind of summarizes the entire concept in the title. Um, you, I think you and I have had this discussion, but like you can, you can sit in on a group of entrepreneurs, listen to the discussion for 60 seconds and know how much money they make within a rough, a rough estimate mm -hmm. or what level of the business that they're working, if they're employees, like where they, where they sit on the org chart um, because of what level of conversation they're having. And so... At the highest level, you're talking about allocation of resources. That's mm -hmm. all it is. It's just capital and human allocation. Yeah. Um, and you know, one level maybe below that would be uh, human, like human capital, which yeah. is how are we going to attract talent? How are we going to train talent? How are we going to get compounding returns on talent? Uh, because you know, I, I like the saying, but um, you're just one great hire away from all of the money that you want. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is, is that I think the catch of that that ism <laughs> is that you have to become the type of person that that person wants to work for. Totally. And, and that's, that's, why you that's the hard part. Yeah. That's like, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah of course. Uh, what's his name? It's Tim Cook, uh -huh. right, of Apple. He could he could probably grow your business, but he wouldn't work for you. Yeah, <laughs> yep, yep, yep. And so like that has been always at the forefront of Layla and I's mind is, and that's part of, of what we do with the brand stuff, which is we want the brand to stand for things that, because we're, we're just as aggressively advertising at a tactical level, we're more aggressively advertising from a transactions perspective for the talent we put in portfolio companies. So we place talent, I mean, a few times a week. I mean, we have mm -hmm. three, four leadership positions a week that we fill in our portfolio companies compared to how many deals we do at the portfolio level. Um, and so, and that's the, that's the highest return on capital that we have is buy someone, and I say buy just in the capital term, yep. um, buy talent for 200,000 a year, make 20 million a year. Yep. No brainer. Great trade, right? Yeah. And, and one of the big, one of the big misnomers. I think that one of the biggest mistake entrepreneurs make, myself included, when I was earlier on, is that I didn't understand the difference between A and B talent. You can pay a talent thirty percent above market and get ten x the output. And like, there's no sense in ever paying below market, in my opinion, because you just don't get. You can get so much more for the for the extra premium that totally. you pay that it's one of the best. It's like the best best bet in Vegas. Yep. You know what I mean? The best trade you can make is that premium to bring the the right person in that's ten times more effective. Yep. You know, have you heard of the the Keith Raboy? Um, he has this expression about barrels versus bullets. Mm -hmm. So the concept here, it, this guy was, um, I think he was like a COO of of Square or Block, whatever you want to call yeah. it. He's high up at PayPal. But anyway, so what he said was like, look. In an organization, you need barrows. These are going to be the ones that you give them a problem or mm -hmm. like something, and they'll just solve it, right? Yeah. And then the bullets, like they will do what you tell them to do, but 
you should always hire a barrel whenever you meet a barrel. And that's kind of what you're saying here. Mm. And, and to me, like, I, I, I love playing poker, right? Like, I'm a gambler at heart. But in, in like, in business, it's, like, unfair. It's, like, yeah. you make this hire, it's, like, upside is unlimited. Well, right? I mean, it's gotten to the point now where we will, like, we interview, we basically have open interviews. Yeah. So if we see someone who's incredibly talented, we will hire them without really having a clear position yeah. for them yet. And, like... Yeah. It, I'm saying that's a bit, that's if we have an incredibly talented person. Like we had someone yeah. recently um, who is an exceptional sales director, had huge experience, was an ex-CEO, like all this great stuff, great value fit. Um, and one of our portfolio companies were about to, uh, you know, make the recommendation that you should take this person. Um, and they were like, we don't, we don't think we want to do it. Um, and so we hopped on the phone and we we're like, you're wrong. Um like we have a lot more context on this. You should yeah. do it. And it ended up somebody from like their outside had said, you shouldn't do it. And they had no, that person uh, had no context. Yeah. And they were like, we actually wanted to hire him, but we didn't trust ourselves, which by the way is huge part for entrepreneurs is like you make one bad hire and then you think, I can't hire people. Like you're going to make mistakes. It's part of the game. You get better and better at pattern recognition. And so this person had talent. It was clear. Yeah. And so we were like, just so you know, we're hiring him no matter what. And so we're either going to put him in your company or yep. putting him in somebody else. And they were like, okay, yeah, yeah, no, no, we want him. Yep. And so it's like, I think that's the level of talent is like, you should feel FOMO when you're talking to the person. Yep. And here's the other litmus test that I love. I got this from Layla. If you are not learning on the interview from the candidate about the thing that they're supposed to take over, you shouldn't hire them. That's because it means that you know more than them, which means that you're required for them to be successful, yep. which means that they need you and you know, you don't get leverage. Yep. That dude, that's way better. So I used to use this Larry Page proxy. Um, so he, he would just get bored on all these interviews, right? Yeah. So, you know, one of the founders of Google, and, and he would be like, "Yeah, so like, tell me about something you're passionate about." Okay, great. You're gonna teach me for seven minutes, so you can learn something. Yeah, Layla's is even better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if you think about from a from a chunked up example, an organization grows if the not if the cumulative knowledge base of the company grows, mm -hmm. and so if you bring somebody in who you have the complete you have their entire complete knowledge set about whatever the subject matter is yep. then the organization doesn't grow just as simple as that yep. and if you were the smartest person in your business then it means that the business will be capped by your brain yep. if you have four other people who have huge uh, trench knowledge then i see it as this like in my head i see it as this christmas tree where like if you have four like this the peak goes way above because you have this wider wider top mm -hmm. so the peak is way way higher whereas if you're the single brain at the top the peak is the top of your head yeah so what, that's like how i visualize very it. small christmas tree yeah very yeah. small christmas tree exactly yeah. Dude, no presents that's that's good um so actually we have a couple minutes left here but the Layla conversation is going to be really focused on talent acquisition because that that is the game. So um, she's anyway, a G at it. She's a savage. I mean, speaking of savages, so so a yes, both of you are savages um, in a good way, obviously. But B, when you find this talent, right? Like I tell people, I, I tell my staff, it's like, dude, you know, and if you have that feeling, that little gut feeling, yeah. you pull the trigger. You don't wait, yeah. you don't wait that long. Yeah, because the like, next person the interview with will hire him. Yeah. Totally. So you, you'll do it on the spot sometimes. We don't do, I mean, we don't, we still follow a process, but yeah. we, we do 24 hour turnarounds to move Got things it. forward. There you go. Yeah. yeah. But usually your, your turnarounds like. We try and do, we try and do everything one day apart. If okay. we, like, we always try to do that. Like Understood. we have really good metrics around HR. Like our cost to fill 
is way below industry average. Our time to fill roles yep. um, is like 22 days versus wow. industry average is much higher. Yeah. Um, our two-sided fit at 90 days, uh, which is one of our key metrics, is that the the person above the person and the person both say that it was a perfect match mm. 90 days later. Two-sided fit. I yeah. like that. You guys came up with that one too? Uh, well, director of HR did. Oh, and that was okay. because she came from Audax, a uh, private equity firm. And so yeah. she was director of people there. Yeah. And so on the interview, she was teaching, a, a, she gave all these metrics that yeah. I didn't like time to fill. And I was like, I should, why have I never tracked this? Like, yeah. that's so smart. Yeah. And she's like, what's the cost to fill? And yeah. here I am thinking, I was like, oh yeah, I'm this big metrics guy. I know the cost to acquire customer, CPM, CPL, all these yeah. things. And she's, and she's like, oh, you don't know what your cost to fill was. And I was yeah. like, wow, like such an idiot yeah. myself. Yeah. And so that's why, like, that's why you need really smart people around yeah. you because like I learn from from her all the time. You should feel like an idiot when you're talking to high caliber prospects. About their subject. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Cool. You know, so I'm going to go back to a story here because um, we have a guest question here. But we were eating lunch one time and your order was, give me four chicken breasts. Yeah. So <laughs> tell us about the... I've seen the, the the video you have with the ice cream and all that. How how is your diet like? What is the question here from the, my, my buddy is um what is Alex's fitness routine aside from what he has said and, oh, and diet as, diet as well? Yeah, um, like right now I haven't worked out in like three or four weeks, um, which is not as common for me. But I go through seasons. Um, I would say like I didn't I didn't miss uh more than a week of working out for like sixteen years. Wow. Um, and then I in my old age, um, you know, I'm crossing 19 years of training now. Um, so I've like, for everyone who's like the entrepreneurs who like all of a sudden decide to like start getting into fitness and then mm -hmm. they start lecturing people when they've only been doing, working out for like two years. Yeah. Like I read the book and the article and I know the guy who wrote it and I know how he makes his money and he, you're not seeing the whole truth, but mm. that's okay. Uh, Wait, which article are you referring to? Oh, I'm just saying like, okay. In general, in general, in general, like whatever that thing is that you're like really obsessed about right yeah, now, yeah, it's because yeah. you understand it very. Like yeah. I'm all keto, I'm intermittent fasting, yeah. I do high carb, you know, high carb, or I only do vegan, or I like whatever make believe thing yeah. you have. Like there's a few things that matter, and everything else is just preference. You yeah. know what I mean? And so I don't know if this is an evolism, but like if you can't do it for a decade, don't do it for a day. Um, and so there's definitely been seasons where I'll train harder, uh, but overall, I. Do resistance training because it's the number one thing for you know longevity, maintaining bone mass, etc. Um, and then from a health perspective, it just comes down to calorie intake from a body aesthetics, and then making sure that you have the vitamins that you need and micronutrients. Yeah. But like for most people in the developed world, we don't normally have vitamin deficiencies, and we usually don't have mineral deficiencies. Um, again, that clinic that you go to where they do the blood work and they can have you chew on something and then spit it out and it does pink and then you take a supplement and then it's blue. Like you have to understand that these are also businesses. Like I come from the health and fitness world. Like, mm -hmm. I, like there's, there's games behind these things. Um, and so I try to keep things as simple as possible. I eat two pounds of meat a day. That's how I get my 200 grams of protein in. Yep. That is very easy for me to do. And then I have dessert in excess of my calories to hit my goal. If I want to lose weight, I eat less dessert. If I, if I want to maintain weight, I eat the same amount. If I want to gain weight, I'll add other calories to my other meals that have meat in them. So rather than just meat, I'll have meat and pasta or meat and rice, whatever. Yeah. Um, but training has been progressive overload on resistance training, meaning weights and machines and plate-loaded machines for almost two decades. Got it. Is there anything else? I, it's, I, I think you probably, my guess here is that you started out and then you tried yeah. all the things yeah. and it's like, no, let's just simplify it to these and these work. Yeah. Do you do anything around anything else that's strange, like preventative healthcare? People are like, oh yeah, the MRI scans, all this type of stuff. I don't, so, maybe I will later, but yeah. right now I, I don't. I've, um, I focused, 
I mean, all the things that I just mentioned. So like I did kettlebell only training. I did barefoot training. I did exclusively swim sprint training. Um, I've done high intensity interval training. I've done um, like all strongman style training. I've, I was a competitive powerlifter for five years. Um, and now people would probably consider me more of like a bodybuilder-esque in terms of training style and aesthetics. And so like I have done a lot of different styles of training. And when it comes to diet, I did the warrior diet when you ate one big meal at night. I've done intermittent fasting. I've done alternate day fasting. I've done um, I've done keto. I've done uh, all um, the opposite of keto. So like high high carbs, super low fat, high, high protein. I've done zone. I've like I have done them and it was because in my first decade of fitness you hop on all of these trains because part of it is like you want to experiment, you want to learn, you want to see how you react. And part of it is because you believe the magic, right? There's something different. Mm -hmm. But there's a few fundamental truths and they all come down to physics, which is just like law of thermodynamics. Like there's a certain amount of energy that you consume. And if you have less than that, you will lose fat, period. It will get taken from energy stores. Like, well, what about uh, starvation mode and things like that? Like there was a Minnesota starvation study where they starved people for like months, no food. And the biggest decrement they saw in basal metabolic rate was 30%. And so that means that when you're truly starving, your BMR goes to 70%, which I mean is significant, but it's also not like, like the women that I used to, you know, have at my gym, like, I think I'm in starvation mode. I was like, I think you just snack, (laughs) you know, like, I was like, if you want to see starvation mode, go to Africa. Like none of them have cellulite because they are starving. (laughs) Like, you know, we use these words, but like, in order to truly get that level of decrement and decrease in your you know, BMR, uh, you have to really be restricting for a very long period of time. And most people don't even track what they eat. And so like, if you don't track what you eat, it's kind of like the guy with the opinion. Like, I don't, I don't care. Like, right. You don't even have data. So, and the, the thing with any of these, these you know, diets or at least approaches is you have a certain calorie intake that you maintain your body weight at. The thing that fudges this is that people are very bad at measuring what they take in like what they eat and they're, but that's even, uh, that's still easier than measuring what your output is because you have non-exercise activity that really, so like if I'm, if I'm bobbing my foot or I'm mm-hmm. chewing more gum or I'm taking the stairs more, or I'm cleaning the house, like those few hundred calories a day over a week or over a month add up a lot. Um, and so usually what happens is when you get older, your metabolism doesn't necessarily decrease nearly as much as people's activity decreases. And so they think that their metabolism is really slow, but it's like when you were 20, you were in two rec leagues and you had to walk cross campus uh, at college and you were walking three miles a day and you didn't even notice <laughs> it, right? With a backpack on, that yep. was like 25 pounds, yep. right? Like it was rucking now, yep. but like you just had a backpack as you were a student. Yep. And so it's just like, we have these perspective shifts that have to happen, but there's a few things that happen. Progressive overload, meaning you lift more weight over time, works, that builds muscle. Yep right? Uh, protein increase builds and maintains muscle. Hormones build and maintain muscle. Calorie surpluses help maintain anabolic states. Calorie deficits, you lose tissue. You go into catabolic states, period. That's it. The rest of it is preference. Yep. Look, I, I think this all wraps well together because it's the reason I bring this up too is because you simplified it. And just like business, it's comes down to people, right? Yeah. A lot of blocking and tackling. Same thing with this, the health stuff too. It's like we're, there's a lot of distractions. Oh, there's this new diet over here. Oh, should we like cold plunge or should we like infrared mm-hmm. sauna? Like should we, I don't know, blue light blocking, whatever, right? Yeah. Um, but it just comes down to the simple stuff. And I talk about this just for context. So this is for you guys. You can add it back in. Um, is This is per- purely from the perspective of aesthetics. 
If you want to maintain a certain amount of body mass with a certain percentage of fat and a certain percentage of muscle, those are the only things that matter. Um, the other stuff, it, it gets into, you know, magic and, and all the stuff that I, I don't, I don't partake in. And what's interesting is like, I don't talk about fitness much. Um, and it's mostly because I am so, I, I mean, it's been 20 years. So like I'm, I'm, I've been in, I've been knowing about fitness for longer than I've known about business for context. Yeah. Um, and so I also did that professionally for a very long time. And a lot of like the, the YouTube world and like the influencer world or people that follow me don't know, like they see that I'm quote jacked, but like I wrote the plans that 4,000 gyms use. Like you've mm -hmm. probably used my stuff. And so, you know, people are like, oh, this guy has such great thinking. But then if I make a comment about food, then everyone feels entitled to an opinion because they have a body. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yep, yep. Right. So they, but like they, how many people have you helped change like their physiques? Probably not many. Mm -hmm. um, and you probably can't even change your own. So like, it's kind of like in, in, in business where like no one wealthier than you will take shots at you. Yeah. No guy who's ever been more jacked than me has ever said anything negative to me totally. about fitness stuff. Yep. It's only like laptop warriors and whatnot. And so like, again, my my level of care is so much more passionate about helping people make money to like sustain their families and whatnot. Um, and it's I don't have a lot of passion anymore around fitness and maybe it's been two decades and maybe that's why. Um, but yeah, to me, it's the, the equation has been simplified. And the thing is, is that business, I remember this, there was a moment when I stopped reading T Nation and mind you, that's not where I got my source of content, but I'm just saying like, Teen Nation. it was like back in, I mean, back in the, <laughs> like the early 2000s. Okay. Uh, There's like all these articles for like lifting and nutrition yep. and stuff. And I remember there was a day when I was like, I think I get it. Like I, I, human bodies haven't changed. And so I, I have a sufficient amount of knowledge to do all the things that I need to do and to help other people do what they need to do. And so my consumption of new stuff dropped dramatically because everything at this point is such a small increment in terms of changes in physique and performance and all that stuff that like sleeping well, eating your protein and working out are yep. still so big compared to everything else that it just doesn't matter. And the reason I think I got into to business and I've stayed and I think I will continue to be interested in business, whereas I, my, my love of fitness started to wane is because business changes all the time. Yep. So like, Bodies haven't changed, but business and the market changes all the time. And I think that's why I love it. Best game ever. All right, last question for you. Your coach is 80-year-old Alex, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah. What are some things that 80-year-old Alex has told you recently? Sometimes you have to give time time. I mean, most of the themes of my 85-year-old self, like if there was like a, a handful of themes that our conversations lead toward, um, one is like, this doesn't matter. Like it's going to work out either way. And so it's me, it's like basically just zoom out. So that's probably one. Um, a second theme is just around patience, which is like, I think you just need to stay busy. I don't think you need to do anything about this. Mm. So that's the second one. I think um, redefining problems is not problems. Like my my undefeated heavyweight champion of the world solution is decide something isn't a problem. <laughs> okay, I like that. Yep. Like, like how do I solve this? It's like, what if I just decided it wasn't a problem to begin with and kept living my life? And that a lot of times when you're 85, I feel like you have more of that perspective. It's like, yeah. that's just not, I'm just not, I'm going to decide that's not a problem. Yeah. No fucks given. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I would say th those are three. Um, but dude, patience is by far the biggest one. Um, and, and, and I'll give the fourth um, embracing uncertainty because I, and many of us want a guarantee from a world that doesn't give them. Mm. It's like, I wanna know 
that this is going to work, which is such a fallacious thought at the onset, because if I actually knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that something would happen, I would lose all interest because then it would be boring. Yep. It's like having the cheat codes and playing a video game. It's good for like five seconds and then you realize it's not totally. a challenge at all. And yep. so like I have this desire that if it actually were met would be the ultimate undoing of my desire. So it's just a complete smokescreen that I've made up in my head. And so my 85 year old self just, I would say like most of the time it just points. He doesn't even have to say anything. He's just yep. like, and you're like, yeah. <laughs> but All it's right. crazy though how powerful it is because I don't have, like if I had a, a therapist or a coach or something, I'd have to spend 90% of my time trying to give context to the problem that I know the answer to. And I'm just not doing it. Like we give significantly better advice to other people than we adhere to ourselves. That's the paradox you're talking yeah. about. Solomon's paradox. Yep. Yeah. And so if we can harness our own ability to give better advice with the absolute context that we have on our situation and the aligned incentives that we have, that no one else can have as aligned incentives for us as we are, then I think it unlocks a, another level of quote coaching that's been tremendously helpful for me. And I would say that I haven't, like my sessions with Solomon, even though it's me, but I just call it Solomon um, in my head, um, sometimes they're really long and sometimes they're short because sometimes like things are working and I'm good. And so I kind of see it as like the, uh, the therapist or the performance coach that is on demand. Like if I need him, he's there. And I have a blocked you know, hour in my calendar every Monday. It's the first thing I do every Monday um, is have my time with Solomon. But it's rare that I take the full hour. Um, it's usually between five minutes yeah. and 30 minutes is and usually what- Are like, you sitting around, you walk in? Oh, uh, no, I, I'm at my computer. Got so it. I actually do a chat back and forth and I go from him to me, him to me, him to me. And I type out all the yeah. responses. Because I think even typing out what my question is, you even like- like many problems, if you can properly ask, ask the right question, that's 90% of the solution is asking the right question yep. or precisely stating the problem you're trying to solve. Yep. Um, and so that process helps me solve most of the issues that come up that aren't really issues to begin with. I love it. Well, I know we can go on forever, but what, we're going to end it right here. So yeah. what is the best way for people to find the book? Yep. And I mean, just Google yeah. Alex Ramosi, right? Yeah. How do you find the book? Yeah, you can go to, um, I mean, you can go to Amazon, but if you want to... Uh, go to acquisition.com forward slash leads. Uh, and we also have training and courses and other materials that are all free, no opt-in on the site at acquisition.com. Um, and if you are a company and you have, you know, an EBITDA of a million, two million, five million, eight million, um, hit us up. You know, we're always looking for great founders who are looking for growth partners. And because that's, that's, that's what our day job is. <laughs> all right. I love it. Alex, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for having me. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. 
Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love at First Listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people, it gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right. 